Alrighty, so this is Snake Eyes from 98? Yeah, 98. Not yeah, make, the Make other. that clear, yeah. <laughs> you, I, I'm, I'm gonna bring that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fuck. I was like, are you fucking serious? You want to take another swing at Snake Eyes? That was man? another reason why I was like, oh, this will be, you can at least get maybe a little bit out of this or something. <laughs> Are you fucking crazy? (laughs) Did not have a good time, Brad. I will. I willfully went to the restroom. I was like, I am forcing the urine into my bladder right now because I I need out. Yeah, it's like during that torture scene, Brad. During the torture scene, Brad. I was just like, no, no, you got to be kidding me, man. (laughs) Like, is that Henry Golding's like mean face? Is that his angry voice? (laughs) That is not. That is not a Batman caliber voice. Yeah, actually. don't like, remind he, me. He is so saccharine sweet. <laughs> like, he, he can't play intimidating. Yeah, go back to the romantic comedies. I was like, fuck this shit. I'm going to go take a piss. A long, <laughs> a long piss. <laughs> I don't do that in the theater, Brad. I I don't know about you. I think I asked you this before, but uh, Avengers Endgame. Um, I actually looked up ahead of time. When would be a good time to pee? Because oh, I yeah. saw that three-hour runtime, and I was like, you know, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna employ some strategy tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, did you, did you do that, or did you have to whiz? I know, I remember seeing like articles like th- this is the best time to pee. Um, I don't think I actually looked it up. I didn't because I, I know they kind of like avoid spoilers, but I didn't want anything. Um, so I, I think the first time I saw it, I think I went full stop through. Uh, I, you know, I was definitely like very aware of it like not drinking anything during the movie not drinking anything beforehand and peeing as soon as the movie was about to start that kind of thing usually if i play that game i'm okay yeah brad went to the theater with uh chapped lips <laughs> it's <laughs> like brad you look really your cheeks are sunken it's like so it's thirsty like, <laughs> i'm so very thirsty <laughs> but I, I need to know how they undo the snap <laughs> <laughs> I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of November 2021, and uh, we are at the conclusion of our No Theme November event month. Uh, Essentially what that means is uh, my regular co-host, Kyle, uh, had some real-life shit to take care of, uh, which left me kind of hanging without a guest. Uh, so all all this month of November 2021, I've been reaching out across the internets uh, for guest hosts uh, to help me uh, to review films. Uh, so every week I've had a new host, uh, but this time around, I'm going to bring uh, an old stalwart back into the fold. <laughs> <laughs> so in joining me uh, for this, this final week of No Theme November for 2021, I have my very good buddy Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast. How's it going, Brad? Oh, it's going great. Excited to be here. You know, uh, like you and I record all the time with our Tales from the Shelf and our monthly Blu-ray episodes, but it's been a little while since uh, 
I've been on a regular catching up on cinema. I think the last one was Kill List, I believe, right? That was like a year ago, maybe. Yeah, I think that was last year in October. Yeah. So just over a year ago. But always glad to have you, Brad. And it's it has been too long since we've had you on for just a, a regular 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 review episode. But um, yeah, folks at home, if you're not aware, Brad does record with me pretty much twice a month. Uh, so thanks for clearing your schedule and helping me out with that, because those are those are two projects that I, I really enjoy. And I'm very, very proud and happy to have you involved in. Yeah, they're a ton of fun for me, so you no need to thank me. I have a blast doing them. So <laughs> I mean, like like I've said, like I we've we've both said probably on and off the mic a few times, uh through talking over the internets and whatnot. Um it's almost like a a way to justify our, our habits. <laughs> it's like in 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 acquiring all of these DVDs, Blu rays and four Ks, it's like, well, you know, not all of them are gonna get watched, especially not right away. So one one way to justify the expense is to you know have a conversation about those titles. Exactly. So, so it's it's a way to feel a little better about our lifestyles. Yeah. But it is fun in the meantime. Though, and so. based on how many Blu-rays I bought over Black Friday weekend, we might need to record three times a month instead of twice a month. I mean, whoa, oh boy, yeah. So. Well, as uh, as uh, Rorschach said in Watchmen, um, I'm not in here with you. You're in here with me. <laughs> uh, so, folks at home, if you're not down with the tales from the shelf or the catching up on Blu-ray episodes, I am very sorry. But I'm gonna I'm gonna egg uh, Brad onto a tangent here. Uh, what did you pick up uh, for the Black Friday sale this year? Well, let's just say that technically Black Friday is still not over. I might actually add some more stuff into my order uh, when we're done recording here. But so far, um, I did participate in the uh, Criterion sale, which isn't Black Friday. It's all month long, but I actually just ordered it last week. Um, so I got a few Blu-rays there. I've got, I got Menace to Society on 4K. I got Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I got the complete works of Jacques Tati, which is a big box set that I've been wanting to get for a while. Finally decided to pull the trigger, and then I did uh, get some Vinegar Syndrome Blu-rays, of course. Um, I did get uh, your personal favorite, uh, what is it, Champagne and Bullets? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> get, get, A.K.A. Gedevin. Yeah, um, and that was one. There were two titles, because the thing with Vinegar Syndrome's website is they track how many uh, available copies of a movie are left, and I knew that that one only had like 500 left. And there was another movie called Deadlock, which is a German Western film, and that's a 4K. That's from one of their partner labels. That one only had like 300. So immediately, 1201, I didn't waste any time. I just went boom, boom, added them both to my cart, paid, checked out. I didn't even bother looking around because I saw other people who were like, oh, yeah, I was adding other stuff to my cart and I missed out on them. And so it's like, you snooze, you lose. Um, and then I also got, let's see, I got Scanner Cop 1 and 2 4K. Um, there's something else too. I'd I'd have to look. I, it's bad when you don't even remember. Yeah, if memory serves, I think the uh, commentary track that comes with Scanner Cop is is by a podcast that I'm I'm very familiar with oh, and really? I have a lot of respect for. Um, cool, so maybe cool. check that out. Also, um, I <laughs> I hate to throw this on you, Brad, but um, the uh, Champagne and Bullets, uh, that that particular iteration of the film is is in those in that box there are three different versions of the same film mm-hmm. uh, i personally have only watched the most recent cut of that which is champagne and bullets um but i i'm tempted to go back and watch some of the other cuts because that that cut i'm sorry is basically just a softcore porn with yeah. like one action beat 
Um, but I've seen footage of other cuts of the film that suggests that there's there's a more embarrassing, more action-oriented cut uh, in the form of Get Even, a.k.a. Get Even, um, that I may have to go back and watch. So I, I guess be be careful as to which version of the film you decide to watch. Yeah, I don't have high hopes. It, it was A lot of it was uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, so I saw that it was going down and I was like, yeah, I, I don't want to regret not getting it. So uh, I, I was intrigued. I was intrigued. Okay, well, uh, those all sound like awesome titles, though. So good on you for grabbing them like right before they're probably going to run out of stock yeah. forever, basically. Um, especially because the uh, director of that film is is a lawyer uh, and is notoriously litigious. So I, I'd imagine that's all we're getting. Like, like the, probably the agreement, the, the contracted deal was just, you get to print X number of copies, and then those people get to laugh at me via those Blu-rays. And beyond that, it, it has no more additional footprint on the internet, hopefully. Yep. Because piracy is not a thing. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm curious, Brad, uh, that uh, Ebola syndrome that uh, Vinegar Syndrome announced, is that currently available or is that like due out soon? Yep. Yeah, you can purchase it. Uh, it was just announced, so it wasn't like on sale during the Black Friday sale. So I didn't pick it up just now. Um, but I, I'm very intrigued. Uh, I don't know a ton about it. I know it's just very shocking and, you know, it's just it's uh, dialed up to 11. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I might pick it up uh, in their next sale because I think it would be included then. And, uh, you know, it's it's a 4K. It's a Vinegar Syndrome 4K. You got to do it. Yeah, that's a film that's uh, long been like on my list of curiosities since probably like high school because uh, mm-hmm. it, it's from director Herman Yao. Uh, I've watched his other uh, notorious Category 3, which is a for the Hong Kong rating system. That basically is like an R or maybe even like a hard R or an X rating for a film. Uh, so there aren't that many Category 3 films, but they are a subgenre unto themselves. But he, his other one is called uh, The Untold Story, uh, a.k.a. B- Bun Man. Um, okay. It also features Anthony Wong in the starring role. He's a he's a fantastic actor, but I've seen that, mm-hmm. and that is some twisted shit. Um, but Ebola Syndrome is supposed to be truly vile. Yeah. Um, and, but unfortunately... Brad and I, I think are both the type that's like, ooh, <laughs> when, you, when you hear those words associated with a film, it's just like, oh, now I'm curious. God damn it. I was pretty excited when I saw that they announced that, and I was even more excited when I read the plot synopsis and looked at the screen caps. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, like if you just read the plot synopsis that folks at home just <laughs> you'll know you'll know what your interest level is just by reading a paragraph about the film but yeah anyway uh thanks thanks for the info i, I wasn't yeah. sure if it was out just yet but anyway we should probably get to the review uh so <laughs> brad uh being as you are our distinguished final guest for no theme november 2021 uh, you want to tell the folks at home uh, what film it is that uh, you decide to have us review this week yeah i decided to pick a movie from 1998 we are reviewing snake eyes now this again it is the 1998 brian de palma version not the 2021 gi joe version who i don't remember the director of starring does it really fucking matter brad (laughs) (laughs) yeah your your reaction when i suggested snake eyes was uh pretty strong (laughs) yeah folks at home my my gut reaction my knee-jerk reaction to that was are you fucking serious (laughs) like dude we already reviewed snake eyes for your show <laughs> and it was a fucking shit show it's fucking terrible yeah and it has it has ninjas how could it be terrible it, it actually is terrible folks 
that movie fucking sucked. Yeah. I don't say that lightly. That is not an assessment I make lightly for a film. I I was deeply disappointed by by Snake Eyes 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was yeah. quite bad. I would say it was one of the worst films I've seen this year. Um, everybody I know who has seen it pretty much agrees. Uh, my girlfriend Lizzie was like, yeah, it was really boring. <laughs> yeah, it's really boring. It's it's directionless and th- the biggest sin it could have possibly committed. And I, I said this on the show and I told Brad like off off air, just like I went into it with high expectations because the action choreographer was Kenji Tanigaki, who is bona fide. He's bona fide. He's a Dapper Dan man. Uh, he's he is he is a bona fide action choreographer. He has an extensive list of credits. He's he's worked with Donnie Yen for decades. Uh, he he's a fantastic choreographer, and yet the action in the film was fairly anemic for the most part. It wasn't particularly creative. It was it was terribly shot for the most part. And I don't know if that comes down to Henry Golding just not having the juice, just not having the goods. But point is, the movie is is not good. It is no yeah. bueno. Uh, so when when Brad approached me saying like, "Hey Trevor, you want to review Snake Eyes?" It's like, "Fuck off, Brad! Are you fucking serious?" I come to you at the last minute asking for help to run a fucking podcast, and you come at me with some Snake Eyes. Get the yeah. fuck out of here! I just had to troll you a little bit there. I had to troll you a little bit. Well, it worked because <laughs> I, I had to do a double take. But yes, uh, today we will talk be talking about uh, Brian De Palma's nineteen ninety eight film. Uh, Snake Eyes, which is, of course, headlined by one uh, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Nicolas Cage, <laughs> if you will. Um, this this was a rewatch uh, for both of us. Um, and this was, this was I'll spoil it right up, right up front. Uh, this was a very pleasant rewatch for me in particular, um, because I probably saw this film in 1998 or 1999, okay. and I thought it was nice. Like, I thought it was fine. Um, it is important to note this film was not critically well-regarded at the time of release. It didn't do well financially either. Um, but there, there's a lot of elements to it that are weaknesses. They are flaws in the film. And yet, I, I told Brad before we started recording, it's like there, it, it pushes past that just on the sheer strength of its film act, filmmaking and its cinematography. I just kind of found myself just being happy to look at the thing most of the time such that i i personally like I, I can't speak for everyone i personally just found myself like forgiving so many of the flaws in it just because i was so entranced uh with just the sh- the filmmaking on display but brad I, I guess the first important question i have for you is why uh why did you pick snake eyes other than to you know throw up throw a gag in my face <laughs> well, yeah, the, the gag you know i've said before everything i do is in the name of comedy so the gag was part of it um but also this probably isn't the best uh reason for picking one but you know i was looking as you know when i uh buy blu-rays i have a new release shelf so when i pick up a new blu-ray i put it on that shelf before adding it into the collection and I was like, you know, I've got carte blanche here. I can uh, pick any movie I want. Let's pick one of these new release Blu-rays that I recently bought just by my purchase. And I was looking at some and like, you know, there was some some giallo over here. And I was like, yeah, you know, you, you've talked about maybe doing a giallo month. So I was like, well, maybe I hold off on that. And uh, I saw Snake Eyes and I was like, you know, I, I wouldn't mind uh, revisiting Snake Eyes. I bought this Blu-ray a couple months ago. Time to finally add it on to the permanent shelf. Let's uh, pop it in and watch it. Um and I had seen the film before, but I will say the way that I had watched it before, not ideal. I had, uh, and this was just like a few years ago, probably. I had rented it from a video store, 
and it was an old, old DVD. Uh, they didn't have, I, I think the Blu-ray was out of print. So there was a Blu-ray out in the wild, but obviously it wasn't easy to get. Um, but I was like, whatever, I'll watch the DVD. It was one of those old DVDs that was like specifically formatted for full screen televisions, but presented widescreen. So when you watch it on a widescreen television nowadays, it's like full screen and then cropped widescreen. So there's like literally just like a rectangle floating in the middle of your screen. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, so not the greatest. Uh, so I was definitely uh, needed to revisit it in some higher quality. So it was nice that they uh, repressed the Blu-ray and finally I got to watch it in HD. Yeah, I was I was getting some flashbacks to the old uh, pan and scan days, Brad. I, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with with the VHS pan and scan format? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I, that was when that was a thing. I was a little too young to know that that was an issue. Um, so I had no. Uh, issues with it when it was actually happening but looking back yeah i know all about it now it's kind of hilarious to look back at i'd be curious what like like a younger person like a teenager how they would react to that because like a film savvy teenager that would be yeah because like i I have vivid memories of watching ghostbusters at my friend's house and just like there's that moment where the camera just goes (laughs) it does like that horrible digital pan just to to make sure dan Aykroyd's in the frame (laughs) it's like oh my god this is so artificial and awful but it's what you had to do in the four by three days yeah um i'm curious uh who put out uh the blu-ray that you ended up watching I think it was just uh, Paramount. I think it was just Paramount Pictures. Uh, yeah, so no boutique label or anything on this one. But Paramount, as we've noted several times, has been dipping back into their uh, their well and releasing a lot of things that they should have put out a long time ago. But at least they're finally uh, getting them out on disc. Yeah, no, th- this is a film that I could actually see myself owning uh, because it it is pleasant to come back to. Like, mm-hmm. I've, I found myself, like, rediscovering the narrative, like, a few steps ahead of the film because I had seen it before. Um, but that didn't really trip me up at all. Like it, it was a very pleasant watch and it has that, that precious, like, I don't know, indescribable, uh, nineties nostalgia quality to it. It has that nineties thriller vibe to it that yep. it's like for a person of our relative age range, it's, it's like a warm blanket. You just kind of slip back into it and it's like, yeah, I remember when movies were structured this way it's like it's like yeah this feels really cozy (laughs) they don't make them like they used to they don't make them like this anymore you know what i'm saying they really don't and uh i mean brian de palma in particular doesn't make them like this anymore (laughs) because uh his career had a had a downturn like it had a a a downturn pretty much around the time of the release of this film it kind of really it kind of resulted in him not really being able to to get gigs uh he apparently got kind of not necessarily blacklisted but he just hasn't able been he hasn't been able to get work uh, in hollywood uh, to the extent that he was in decades prior but uh, that being said uh, we should probably talk a little a little bit about the man uh, brian de palma because uh, his name carries quite a bit of weight uh, he has a he has a profound legacy in hollywood a uh, highly influential director across many decades and like i said for whatever reason he's basically just a non-entity in Hollywood these days, even though, you know, he's, he attempts every once in a while to get a project off the ground. It doesn't ever seem to result in critical acclaim. Uh, most mm-hmm. of them seem to be underseen. Um, but I'm curious, Brad, uh, what's, what's your, uh, what's your relationship or your familiarity uh, to Brian De Palma? Um, I, I like Brian De Palma a lot. Haven't seen all of his stuff. I mean, he's got, he's got quite a few films. There's a lot of stuff to dig through, um, but I would consider myself a fan. I think it was, 
a few years ago now where I kind of did a bit of a marathon with him, and that was when I first watched Snake Eyes, and I went through and rewatched Blow Out. Blow, blow Out, right? Not Blow yeah, Up. Yeah. Blow, yeah, okay. Blow Out. Um, and like, but there had been some stuff I'd seen much younger, like I saw Carrie, and not really knowing about it as a Brian De Palma film, The Untouchables. Um, but yeah, I, I really like the guy. I think his films, uh, they're films that I think if you like, you know, movies from a filmmaking perspective, you can get a lot out of. Um, and I do think there is enough there with like his, uh, his thrillers that, you know, I think for general audiences, there's stuff there for everybody. But I think if you're a bit of a film geek, like you'll get a lot out of his movies cause they're just so very stylized and fun in that way. Yeah, no, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like like his style is is the appeal for me personally. And not only that, it's like I, I bring this up from time to time. Like auteur theory uh in regards to film is just one of those things that you either put stock into or you don't. Uh I'm one of those people that tries to have it both ways. Um I I neither like am fully committed to it or not. I I do think there is something to it, but at the same time I also understand like factually that a film is something that hundreds of people's hands touch in some regard so it's i don't think you can just like lean 100 percent into it anyway um one thing that's always fun about film directors is spotting their tendencies um and it it's sometimes it's a detriment but in brian de palma's case a lot of his tendencies really work for me they're things that i appreciate noticing like they're things that put a smile on my face when i see him going back going back to the old the old well uh to like fish out the old like trademark uh he has so many trademarks um in a lot of ways what's fun about this film is just spotting all of the hallmarks of his of his style and his sensibilities in in mm-hmm. snake eyes is just they're they're all over the film and that's part of the fun of watching it that's that's part of why i'm able to forgive any weaknesses in the narrative or or the script is just because i enjoy seeing the the cinematography and the, and the craft that goes into it, the setup of, lo- of a lot of these shots but Moreover, this is a thing that I've ranted at you tons of times, Brad. Like, set pieces, man. That's what's missing from fucking films is set pieces. Like, I, I love dedicating, like, ten minutes of screen time to just building tension and, and just letting a scene breathe and play out and reach a natural conclusion. I feel like so many, like, especially Hollywood blockbuster movies these days just cannot help themselves. They just have to put too many faces on the screen. They have to have... Too many things happening parallel to each other, such that it robs so much of the weight and the dramatic impact from all of those individual scenes. It's like if you just, if you just fucking calm down and like focused on getting that one thing right, maybe it would play. Maybe it would sell a lot better than if you tried to do it all at the same fucking time. It's like I don't need you to to cut on the punch to a different punch being thrown geographically in a different part of the world. It's yeah. like it's like no, like like the the uh, kind of pursuit scene that happens towards the middle of the film is exactly what I'm talking about. Like that scene was beautiful. I loved it. It it was fantastic. And Mm -hmm. all it is, is just people walking down hallways, looking real mean. (laughs) And it plays out beautifully. There's a lot of drama. It's a very high tension scenario. And that's one thing that Brian De Palma always does so well. And such that like, I know a lot of uh, parallels were being drawn between him and Alfred Hitchcock. Um, when De Palma was kind of at the height of his powers. And you you can't not see it, especially, Brad. I, I'm curious, have you seen the alternate ending for this film? 
Uh, no, I know like what the ending was originally supposed to be. Is there actually a, a version of it that exists, or it's only in like very degraded like work print quality? Okay. Um, so the footage exists. I have seen it, um, but it's it's not great to look at. It's not Blu-ray worthy. Like it's not HDified or anything. It yeah, has the Blu-ray only has a trailer. No bonus features on the Blu-ray, unfortunately. So that was that's that's a, that's a curious yeah that's a curious omission because it, it's readily available on YouTube. Uh, you can look it up, but like the the other ending for this film, the non-theatrical ending, is I feel a very strong nod to Hitchcock because a lot of Hitchcock movies, like a lot of people, point to like his his blonde leading ladies and his his tension building scenes and and his suspense and like that's always one of his trademarks. But another one of his things that he often would do is his movies would fucking explode at the end like the fi- the the final reel of the movie would just go totally ape shit <laughs> like yeah. i think it was strangers on a train with the the merry-go-round or the carousel yeah. or yeah. just like what the fuck is happening <laughs> like we were in like a very classy high society film there was a fantastic script and performances now we got a fucking carousel and a hurricane and yep. shit what the fuck happened to the movie you gotta you gotta turn it up you gotta end on a high note yeah, and he would do shit like that all the time. It's like I, I think that was the that was the concept behind it. It's like, well, you know, the audience was very kind to, you know, sit back and, you know, go along with the ride, but it's like they, they deserve some fucking fireworks. So yeah. let's blow up a carnival. <laughs> yeah. And I and know- then the birds, it's just like, fuck you, we're not doing any of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to end like- off them just driving away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the the original end of this film, spoiler alert, uh, I mean if you've at all listened to catching up on cinema, we we talk spoilers. We we talk about everything and mm-hmm. and largely things that are not related to the film. Case in point, Snake Eyes, the other Snake <laughs> Eyes. But but uh, the original ending of the film uh, involves uh, a hurricane and a a giant like Daily Planet or or Daily Globe uh, style globe. Uh, running over Garrisonese, um, and but you know the combination of the 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 hurricane storm and the and the giant prop and like all the like the water crashing down and stuff, it felt very Hitchcockian, like mm-hmm. that style of ending. But instead, the theatrical ending is more just kind of like, uh, it feels very unexpected. Like it feels like a very harsh left turn. It kind of works, but personally, it's like. I don't know, man. I'm kind of divided on how I feel about that. If if I'd prefer that giant ball running over Terry Sinise. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that the ending for me is the weakest aspect of the film. Um, yeah. It wasn't quite as bad as I remember it being the first time I watched it. I remember it being a real uh, letdown, a real wet noodle first time I saw it. This time it, I didn't think it was quite as bad, but knowing that they had to scrap the original planned ending, like, you know, they are hyping up that, that big globe ball quite a bit and it's like you're watching this movie and now knowing that that's what's supposed to happen it's like oh yeah that now it is a little awkward that they have so many like acknowledgements of that thing coming loose and nothing happens with it and uh you know hyping up the storm the whole movie you can hear the storm outside which i love i love that setup that there's a, a hurricane coming well it's originally a tropical storm but it gets upgraded to a hurricane and then to really not have it play out at all in the uh, final act is, you know, like it's there, like it's raining really hard. But aside from that, that's pretty much it. Well, yeah, it it you're absolutely right. Uh, it is like a planting and a payoff that doesn't quite align with what was set up in the film earlier. Because we do have these lingering shots of this this globe precariously positioned and rocking back and forth on the boardwalk. 
And it's like, is that going to do anything? It's like, oh, I guess not. Yeah. Uh, some people, <laughs> some people are going to see it rolling, and then they're going to like through the magic of editing, just avoid touching it entirely, and then mm-hmm. uh, the the van will inexplicably get wedged in the doorway. Like, like it's actually kind of funny that 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 scenario is less believable than having the globe run over Gary yeah, City. Yeah. <laughs> like the the logistics of it just don't quite add up. There there is some magical editing going on there. It is a little jarring and confusing. Um but yeah, on the whole the the ending is maybe the weakest part of the whole movie. And also like it's a callback to to Greek theater, like the Greek tragedy or or any Greek theater, honestly, the Deus Ex Machina concept, where it's just like we have this unresolvable issue in the form of uh, Nicolas Cage's character Ricky Santoro being positioned in this spot where it's just like I can do the right thing and ruin my life, or I can do the wrong thing and retain what what I have. And it's like, well, we don't really have a way out for you, but it's gonna suck either way. Uh, let's just have a ball run over the bad guy and then uh, see how it plays out from there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Instead of like any character actually influencing the outcome. I do like uh, some aspects of like the epilogue in here, though, like how um, Gary Sinise's character says, you know, if you do this, they're going to drag you through the mud. They're going to ruin you. And actually watching that play out, I actually, you know, kind of like that. It's sort of a bitter sweet ending and he doesn't really get a happy ending because he chose to do the right thing um so i actually i kind of like some aspects of the epilogue but yeah just the way that that climactic sequence plays out is just again a wet noodle like it's it's kind of awkward too how like uh nick cage and uh carla gugino or however you say her name uh how they like dive under the van and just like the cops immediately pull a gun on gary sinise and uh, it's just very awkward and like i don't know it just feels weird yeah it feels very artificial it does feel like maybe a last minute fix um that maybe didn't have to be done but somebody got squirrely like the director himself i will say this much de palma did express dissatisfaction i think with both endings um, but I think he prefers the theatrical ending. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally would disagree, but, you know, it's not my movie. But, yeah, the, there's a leg- lot of leaps in logic that have to happen or for this ending to play out. But you're you're absolutely right. I, I really did like that everything that Gary Sinise says to him is is called back to in the finale of the film, where it's just like mm-hmm. he, he wasn't wrong. Like, everything he said, every threat, it wasn't a veiled threat. Like, that. Like, it's very explicit, and everything did come true, and he 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 chose. He made his decision, but it's a little late in the game, Brad, but we should probably give a plot summary <laughs> uh, for Brian De Palma's Snake Eyes. Do you yeah. want to do, do it, or should I? Uh, I can take a crack at it. Why not? Um, Go for it. So our main character is Rick Santoro, who is a uh, Atlantic City uh, detective police officer. I don't I don't remember his exact title, but he uh, is at a big boxing match at an Atlantic City casino, and he's there with uh, he's able to get front row seats to the match because his buddy, who is a uh, naval commander played by Gary Sinise, is there to uh, help protect the. Uh, What's the guy's name? The lead of the leader of the Department of the Defense. Is the head what is what's his title? Sec- Secta. Secretary of Defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I should have paid more attention. The, and, the, uh, the guy with silver hair and glasses. Yeah. The the white guy in the suit, you know. One of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> the so, bad guy in every action every military action movie ever. Unless <laughs> unless it's snake eyes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, they're in attendance at this fight. Uh, a few suspicious characters are on the uh, the floor of the fight, and uh, eventually 
some shots ring out, and uh, the Secretary of Defense is assassinated. And uh, I guess initially he's sort of, like, not dead yet, which I actually like that because, like, you think about it, like, in all these, like, assassinations, like, they're never, like, pronounced dead on scene. Like, they always at least sort of get close to making it to a hospital usually. So I like that, you know, it's not like he was just, like, he gets shot and it's like, oh, he's dead. I like that. It's like, oh, he's, it's not looking good, but he's still hanging on. I, I, I like that. That felt pretty true to me. Um, so then the rest of the film is just uh, Rick investigating the uh, the assassination and trying to put the pieces together on what exactly happened. And uh, maybe this is where we should just say that for me, I mean, we'll we'll see if you agree. But the main thing that this movie is about is it's all about perspective movie is dealing so much with different perspectives and how you can't believe somebody else's perspective, even if they're telling it to you straight to your face. Even when we're witnessing someone else's perspective, we can't believe it. Um, ultimately, for the most part, the only thing that uh, is the perspective that you can believe 100% is when it's captured on camera. You, the cameras are the uh, things that have the, the truth. You can find the truth in the cameras. Aside from that, you can't believe anything else you see because without those cameras, uh, Rick Santoro, he would not have been able to put in a lot of the pieces together. Yeah, and that's actually kind of like a, a visual element of the film that is very explicit. Like they, Brian De Palma is not subtle in the theming that he's presenting here uh, because the very first shot of the movie is lensed through a, a news report. Mm -hmm. And even the aspect ratio is in good old four by three. Um, and that theme carries on throughout the film. There there are a lot of instances of multicam uh, used in the film uh, in multiple ways, actually. Um, not only in actually splitting the frame of the film to, to display multiple events happening simultaneously, but also in the form of television monitors, like CRT monitors positioned strategically in the frame to show multiple angles or or multiple takes on the same situation playing out. And indeed, the first scene of the movie, we get to see kind of like not necessarily like Rashomon style but we get to see uh the same sequence play out from multiple angles and multiple perspectives and it's yeah. a it's a wonderful theme and that's that is the shit that makes this movie good to me mm -hmm. like I I don't I, I'm sorry I just kind of like go la 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 I put on I put on, <laughs> I, I put on my headphones uh when what if somebody was to come at me with complaints about the script or the pacing and whatnot because just the visual language of the film is is so beautiful to watch. Yeah, and there's there's so many cinematographic tricks implemented in the film that are, are really astounding and really awesome to see, uh, especially the opening scene, which I'd, I'd like to get to because uh, it's a banger, uh, as the kids say. Man, uh, it's it's like a good ten minutes long. Uh, it's comprised of a whole bunch of tracking shots that are stitched together fairly seamlessly. Mm -hmm. um, this is stuff that like. You know, there's there's the the Goodfellas master shot, uh, the the walking through the back of the restaurant. That's often thought of as like the go-to, like the gold standard for an extended take, like a oneer, as they would say in like action action staging language. But these days, like Brad and I, we've we've talked about like trends in cinema. Like oneers have been extremely popular in the past several years. Uh, Creed has has one of the more impressive ones I've seen in that it's a it's an action sequence. It's a very skillfully choreographed boxing sequence uh, with a very fluid camera, like a very active camera and camera operator. Um, it's a good three minutes of 
action, like skillfully staged action. But you, the the list goes on and on of films that utilize this technique to really grab you. Um, but this is not a true one, or like you can see the stitches. Um, but this is 1998. It was a different landscape. Stuff like this wasn't done all the time. This is like this is more like a callback to to like rope or something where yeah. we're using posts and pillars to hide the camera transitions to hide the edits and the cuts um, but it all comes together so beautifully but um, before we talk about that detail though Brad I'm, I'm curious because I haven't personally seen it uh, but I seem to remember a Dennis Quaid movie called Vantage Point oh that's Am I wrong? right yeah you're yeah yeah have you seen that because I have not uh, I saw it when it was first released in theaters it's been a while um, I to the point I don't even I'm assuming you're right that Dennis Quaid is in it. I only remember uh, what's his face, uh, Matthew Fox from oh, Lost. Fu- I, I mean, I know you. I know you are a, a mark for Lost. Like, yeah. Like I know. I know. You, I'm not you, a fan you... of him necessarily. I, I was like about to Lost, say, like, like, are you a it. Matthew Fox guy? No. no <laughs> are but, you the guy? <laughs> I mean, Lost was like big at the time. I mean, I think it was like 2008. Like Lost was like the show and he was in it and uh, but yeah, I think Dennis, I think you're right. Dennis Quaid. I mean, it had a pretty good cast. It had a stacked cast. Like I think I could be absolutely totally wrong, but I seem to remember like a Forrest Whitaker being in there as well yeah. or something. But he was take, yeah, he had a camera. Yeah. But the the point is I remember the one thing I I pulled out of the marketing for the film aside from the Jason Bourne style uh, cover art where it's just like man man with gun like you need to make Lionsgate has it on lock man you got to have that gun on the cover otherwise yep. people won't rent your fucking movie <laughs> but um i the one gimmick i remember about the film is that i think it is like a, an assassination or an assassination attempt and the gimmick is that you get to see the exact same scene play out from many, many perspectives, hence the title Vantage Point. So I'm mm-hmm. curious if that film was any good, uh, being as I quite like Snake Eyes, and it kind of has a little bit of that gimmick going for it. Um, it's been a while. Matthew, I, I remember not hating Matthew Fox, it, but... man. <laughs> that That's a guy that never really took off. Uh, he he does some good things, like like Bone Tomahawk. For instance, oh yeah, he was yeah. he was very good in Bone Tomahawk. That is a skillful use of your Matthew Fox. And actually, there's a movie that I I have wanted to see for all the wrong reasons. This happens all the time, Brad. I, I have some I don't know masochistic viewing tendencies when it comes to film. Sometimes when I hear something's real bad, I I got to know. I got to know how how real bad it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alex Cross, um, apparently Matthew Fox plays like a a mixed martial artist slash serial killer that has to fight Tyler Perry. And I was like, I have to see this. <laughs> I got to know. Yeah. <laughs> and I've heard Matthew Fox is like legendarily bad in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a physical standpoint, the man, the man takes care of himself. I seen speed racer. Oh, he I beefed up him. for this. Yeah. Oh, I, I seen speed racer. I seen him do his Taekwondo. Uh, but uh, from a, from an acting standpoint, uh, as far as I understand, he made every wrong choice that could be made. But uh, that is a movie that someday I will watch. Uh, in fact, it may even be on like HBO right now. That is a movie that is fit for watching while I'm supposed to be working. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm a little curious to check it out. I remember when it came out, it was you know it just got dragged through the mud, and probably for a good reason. But, well, uh, it's also supposed to be the beginning of a franchise that I think began with Morgan Freeman. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, I think it's like Along Came a Spider or something. Yep. It was the same character. And it was supposed to be like like a Jason Bourne or a or a 
Jack Ryan shadow recruit <laughs> or a Jack Reacher. It was supposed to be one of those guy's name turns into action franchise movies, but didn't really amount to anything. But yeah, that that is a curiosity that I would very much like to visit. But mm-hmm. um, you wanna you wanna walk through this this extended opening sequence with me, Brad? Because I, I really do think it is a highlight. And it's something that I want to say is not talked about. But probably should be because yeah. I feel I feel like I see the DNA of the sequence reflected in a lot of more contemporary cinema. Because in 1998, this was this was kind of unique stuff. Like I could be wrong on that, but my gut tells me that's the case. Yeah, certainly to this extent that it continues going on and on. And obviously, like you said, you know there are cuts there that they hide, and uh, most of them are quite good. I think there was one that was a little you could kind of see it pretty easily. I think it was like when a group of, like when. The um, one boxer was walking by his group. I think there was a cut there that was pretty obvious. But overall, they're pretty good. Um, and uh, I know Boogie Nights kind of opened with uh, not to this level, but there was a pretty good uh, opening single shot to that. But yeah, the way that this continues on and on and on and pretty much introduces us to all the major players, a lot of the major, you know, uh, location. I mean, it's a, a single location movie in a big location. So we're visiting a lot of these uh, single locations that we will be going back to. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a really effective opening for sure. Um, And, you know, like I said, you can see how a lot of movies today, there's so many that open up just like this. And uh, if this movie had come out today, I'd probably be like, oh, it's another one of these that's opening up with one of these, you know, 10-minute long extended shots. It's not actually one shot. Um, but certainly for the time, it's definitely ahead of the curve. Uh, and I, I think it's very strong opening. Oh yeah, no, it is very skillfully crafted, high, like very storyboarded. Like they, this was highly intentional and that's part of the beauty of it is that it, in my eyes, it, it is fairly seamless. Like you can see the cuts, but I feel like they, they're like kind of like winking at you. It's like, you see what I did there? <laughs> it's like, it's like, I know you saw that, but like just come along for the ride because it's going to be a minute like this is a protracted opening sequence and also the credits are playing over it so I, i'm always appreciative of front credits one thing i gotta say though first strike against this movie the uh, opening font i was not crazy about the opening font specifically in the fact that um the title of the movie is the exact same font the exact same size as uh every other listed cast member. So if you didn't know any better, you would think there was somebody named Snake Eyes in this movie. Um, <laughs> thought that was a little weird. I was like, oh, that's kind of, it's just kind of, you know, it just blends right in. Well, I was born in 1987, uh, so I kind of missed the G.I. Joe boat, but I, I, I got the scraps. Like, like I have an older brother, so I was exposed uh, to the G.I. Joe phenomenon of the, the mid to late 80s. Uh, and yeah, I, I will confess, Brad, when this film was announced in, in 1998, and I was, you know, very young, I was like, is that a Snake Eyes movie with the ninja? <laughs> it's like, I have a Snake Eyes toy. It has red goggles. <laughs> so yeah, I could I could totally see some idiot kid showing up to the theater and be like, oh man, there's no ninjas in this movie. This is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it turns out we'd get that, you know, a few decades later and it would suck. But um 
what were you hoping for, Brad? Like a speed style opening title where where it makes a zoom noise and the and the, the text flies no. out of the frame. No, you didn't quite need that. Just like give it a little uh, like an underline or make it italicized or even just change it from serif to sans serif. Like you know, just a little little acknowledgement that this is the title of the movie. No, I I actually know where you're coming from with that. I I don't have the same complaint, but I I can follow your your grievance. Uh, because in my mind, and, and I do have a pretty good mind for retaining shots and images from films, um, I can't remember what the title looked like in the frame. Like, I know it was there, but you're absolutely right. It kind of blends a little too seamlessly into the copious amount of front credits we get for the film, such that it doesn't really carry any weight. It's just kind of like, I know I'm watching Snake Eyes, but some some jackass that, you know, has, like, short-term memory problems or something is walking into the theater. It's like, oh, shit, what did I buy a ticket for? I can't remember. <laughs> they have to talk to the person next to them in the theater, and it yeah. turns into a shitstorm. They freak out because there's no ninjas in the movie, and they're really hoping for ninjas. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, the opening title sequence begins with, a, a I think it's Tamara Tooney. Um, I always remember her from uh, the the uh, Devil's Advocate. Uh, she plays like one of the one of the friends like of of the law firm that is up to no good. She has mm-hmm. she has a really good face for that. I hate to say it, like she's a very 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 attractive woman, but she has like a devious quality to her face. That I hate to say it, it's just kind of the case. But she's she's a lot of fun in this one. She's the on-site reporter that always gets the shit end of the stick and has to stand in the tropical storm. Uh, slash hurricane uh, both like book ending the film uh, but the very first image we get in the film is is like this the square in the center of the widescreen film it's it's in four by three because that was the standard for broadcast television at the time so the very first image we get in the film is through the lens of a television camera and at one point uh the person the camera operator i think signals to her that uh there's important like there's vips uh, present at the arena because uh, we're here for a boxing match and this is where he even like trains the camera on them because he sees them at the entrance wait so this is where we see that the uh secretary of defense is there and uh my favorite asshole john hurd um <laughs> uh, he has unfortunately passed away uh as of a few years ago but man i've always liked john hurd ever since i saw big when i was little yeah. i don't get it <laughs> like, like that scene when he beats tom hanks's ass on the basketball court yeah. or, or the tennis court or whatever man yeah. that that was great i, I love john hurd uh, it made me kind of upset to hear that he was doing like sharknado movies towards the end there because he, he's a good actor. He's a good asshole. He's a really skillful asshole, especially... Like, he only really has one important scene in this movie. But goddamn, he nails it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I always like it when he It was a good up. plan! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty yeah. great. Yeah, he's great when he pops up and stuff. Uh, last thing I remember him doing, I did see uh, he was in a horror movie uh, called Would You Rather. And uh, I do believe he was a bit of an asshole character in that one. Uh, so he, he did at least, uh, one of his final credits, he did get to play up that role again. I mean, that's why you hire the man. He's very skillful at it. But, um, after the news report, um, we get some additional shots, uh, showing television monitors. Uh, so we're seeing like a live feed of shots that will be inserted into this broadcast. And we're introduced, uh, to, as I had told Brad, um, ahead of time before we started recording one of the most confusing elements of the cast and and the uh and the scripting and the writing uh because we have kevin dunn on site as another reporter 
uh, in a film which features a character named Commander Kevin Dunn. And my 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 wires were getting crossed the whole time because you know not everybody gives a shit about Kevin Dunn, but for me personally, it's like Kevin Dunn, like that he's he's great. He's you a love cinema. Him. He, he's he's a gem. Yeah, like, like he he's the best angry dad in cinema. <laughs> like, like I love Kevin Dunn, and to see to have a character running around for. A lot of screen time bearing his name, who is not played by him. I was just like, "What? What is?" This? <laughs> but we we see Kevin Dunn, the, the Kevin Dunn, not the character Kevin Dunn. Mm-hmm. We see him, and then we are introduced uh, to one Nicholas Cage uh, as Rick Santoro, Ricky Santoro, and uh, he he has a Cagean entrance. Uh, would you would you fight me on that, Brad? Like this is quite. No. <laughs> yeah, he's the the opening. You know, sequence. Base. I would say basically up until the assassination, he is you know at a very Nick Cage level, and I I think it works because you know he is kind of a scumbag cop, and I like that they don't they don't try and downplay that. Like he takes bribes. Um, it's made clear that he's cheating on his wife. I mean, he's not a good guy, and he's just like so high energy. He's probably on cocaine. I mean, this guy's this guy's off the wall. But I do like when shit hits the fan. He does calm down a little bit. I mean, he's still, you know, he's still kind of up there, but he does calm down a little bit because he does actually do. He does want to discover what is going on. He does take you know responsibility, and that there was an assassination, and he wants to solve it. Yeah, it was interesting actually because, like, from a casting standpoint, I feel like they got the right guy, um, but honestly, maybe the right guy at the wrong time, uh, because th- this particular phase of Nick Cage's career, this is when he was kind of like cleaned up and like more playing like traditional, like handsome leading man type roles. Yeah. But of course, we all know that's that's not essentially what Nick Cage is best at. It's just, you know, there was there was a phase in his career where he was kind of being pigeonholed into that that kind of stuff. And he he made it work. Like like for the most part he he put out some decent performances around that time, but that's just not the correct usage of your Nick Cage. Um so like the the way he he looks, like I would have preferred him a little paunchier and with, you know, a worse hairline. Like, yeah. I feel like it would have fit the character. Like, I'm picturing him in Bad Lieutenant, uh, Porter Call, uh, New Orleans. Or, uh, and as he is here, though, this is like handsome Nick Cage. Um, but his performance tracks, though. Like, I feel like he was the right guy for the job because he is asked to portray a lot of different tones. Because uh, in this opening phase of the movie, he is a slimy bastard. Um, and yes, he does come across as if he's hopped up on cocaine and he's just riding high. Yeah. Um, like basically at this phase in the film, his performance is akin to um, his Oscar speech when he's just screaming about, I love acting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, or, or that interview where he's doing cartwheels and high kicks. Like it, it's that style of energy. Uh, we we gotta find some bombs, man. You gotta help me find some bombs, Mason. Like he's, he's in that mode. Um, Stanley Goodspeed, if you will. But mm-hmm. um, later on in the film, though, he is meant to be a more empathetic character and a kind of a more tortured figure. And he does he does play that quite well. It's just a little weird coming from, like, a very handsome, very clean Nick Cage as yeah. opposed to, like, a paunchier, kind of, like, more more world-weary, more weathered Nick Cage. But they, they on knew the whole, where he the was going. Is solid. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the <laughs> they, they knew where he's going. <laughs> he knew it wouldn't last. Yeah. He, he would he'd get back on the carb train. Like that doesn't last forever. Those mm-hmm. abs don't pop forever. It it's temporary at best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I I think he's quite good in the film and I do like yeah. how you know, he is uh, a scumbag like you said, but you do uh you do get behind him and like you do want him to uh you know, find out what is going on. And I love uh, when he sort of finds out, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but when he finds out about Kevin Dunn and how his friend is behind the assassination, how his reaction to that, where he actually like gets pissed off at uh, Carla Gugino. I, I love that reaction because it's like, he, he just wishes he w- could have gone his whole life without knowing. Like he wishes at that point, he's like, I wish I hadn't stuck my nose in here because this just fucks everything up. Um, and so I like how he, instead of like being like upset at his friend for doing that, he's more pissed off at her for telling him and just for him for investigating this. And I, I like that reaction a lot. No, you're absolutely right. That was the scene that I was going to point to as well. Uh, that stairwell conversation is a, a strong turning point in the narrative and in his character development. And it's it's almost like him going through the stages of grief or something because he's like in denial. At one point, he's like trying to to craft a narrative on the fly that's contrary to what she's telling him because he just is in total disbelief. Um, but more than that, he's just in denial. But then the way that the conversation ends, it's just kind of like a well, shit. I guess I got to be the good guy. <laughs> it's like I really didn't want to be. You forced me to, but. This is how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the opening uh, sequence of the film, like I said, it's like 10 minutes long. It's all these tracking shots of Nick Cage navigating his way through this arena. And we come into contact with a lot of major players in the narrative to come. Uh, we get to meet the Kevin Dunn. Um, and he, he's probably like, how are those small soldiers doing? Like, you got any Transformers in your backyard <laughs> today, Kevin? Um, but... Um, and he's like placing bets and collecting money as he goes. Like there, there are so many props that are exchanged in this opening scene that play into the narrative in later stages. That it's it's almost too much, honestly. Like, oh yeah, like, there's a lot to take in in this opening. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of incredible because like I found myself not overwhelmed. It was more just like I, it was like I don't know, like a fun puzzle that I'm trying to craft on the fly and doing my best to spin all the plates, uh, much like the film is kind of doing, but. Um, we even have a bit where he uh, he's talking on the cell phone with his both his wife, I believe, and his mistress. Um, he's, he's making all sorts of calls on his gaudy uh, gold-plated cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, he's dressed like an asshole. <laughs> I love his. Co- I love how he's dressed. <laughs> I, that'd be a great Halloween costume. I mean, honestly, it would be a deep cut, but it is it is quite the outfit. Um, and it fits the character so beautifully. It, it's almost a shame that I think he like changes his wardrobe partway through uh, to look slightly more professional. Um, but at one point, he runs into a ring card girl for the boxing show that's about to go on, um, and she's lucky number seven. Um, and he basically gives him he gives her his his business card, and she's and he's like basically just like being like I'll bang you later yeah. <laughs> um, but this is this is one of those things it's like things end up in films very intentionally and this seems so innocuous like it just seems like a, a crafting a character on the fly moment like just to like hammer home the point this guy's an asshole but no it actually turns out that, like it's very important to the plot like very important honestly um, but along the way uh, he actually is talking to 
I never remember this fella's name, uh, but I always remember him as Spinner uh, from Death to Smoochie. Um, he plays a lot of mobster types and whatnot, but basically he's one of the bookies associated with uh, the heavyweight champion who's fighting tonight, uh, Tyler, who uh, it's no surprise. I'm pretty sure they're trying to draw parallels to like Tyson or something just in terms of the tie sound. Mm-hmm. Tyler Tyler really doesn't have a great ring to it. Actually, I was a little bit irked by that. I was like, could you just pick a better name? Like, yeah. It doesn't have any ring to it whatsoever. Lincoln Tyler kind of works, like a first and a last name, but mm-hmm. just the name Tyler, it's like... It's a little That's, weak. It's a little flimsy, but he runs into the bookie and he's placing a bet and he actually sees the champ in his dressing room and he, he like makes a run. Like <laughs> like Nick Cage just flips out and makes a run for the door to try to like storm in there and say hi to him because apparently uh, he's a huge fan of his uh, and they went to the same high school, like apparently same graduating class uh, in Jersey somewhere, um, but he doesn't get in there. But uh, this is where we get like a, a transition point where the camera's rounding a pillar and it heads down escalator because Luis Guzman, everybody's mm-hmm. favorite. Uh, Luis <laughs> Guzman is in in the dressing room, and uh, Nick Cage sees him and is immediately like, "Oh, I know you!" <laughs> and uh, he gives chase, and uh, Luis Guzman ends up like tearing open his own hand. Uh, Nick Cage corners him, uh, and this is where we get a really cool reveal uh, where we learn that he is a cop. Yeah, because that's not knowing that before. Like I knew that obviously because I've seen it before, and I just knew what the movie is about, but. The first, however, three, four minutes, you would not expect that this guy is a cop until he pulls out that badge. Yeah, the timing is, is beautiful because, like, he's he's riding the escalator backwards. Like, he's facing the camera as he's going down. And then, like, a security personnel is like, hey, buddy, you can't be down here. And they just casually pulls out the badge and turns around. And he's like, oh, never mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the timing is beautiful because it's like we spent a couple minutes with him. We've seen he's a fucking asshole. He's a scumbag. Uh, and now he's about to do the worst fucking thing he does, basically, in the movie. He corners everybody's favorite, Luis Guzman, and he beats his ass. He takes his money, yep. and he shakes him down, and he steps on his drugs. Like, don't do that to Luis Guzman. He's great. He makes you laugh. He's your best buddy. Um, but, uh, yeah, he beats his ass, he takes his money, and this is where we get the, the bloody, I think it's a $100 bill. Yeah, and I love how that keeps popping up throughout the film. I think that's great. Well, I love that he tries to give it to the bookie, and he's like three thousand yeah. on Tyler, and he's like, "No, man, twenty nine hundred. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I ain't taking that." It's like, why? It's like it's covered in fucking blood. <laughs> Come on, man. it's great, but it is a prop um, that seems again fairly innocuous at the time, but it pops up at pivotal moments in the story, and it's it's this is fucking filmmaking, man. <laughs> it's cool. I love this shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, Nick Cage continues his his wanderings through the arena um and this is where we're introduced to commander kevin dunn not the kevin dunn why couldn't you just been kevin dunn brad <laughs> like like I, yeah it, I actually wonder... this is this is a good time to bring this up brad uh so um this character commander kevin dunn who is one of he's the second most important character in the story essentially um mm-hmm. gary sinise portrays him in, in the film but apparently it was initially offered to Al Pacino, um, which is fair, being as Brian De Palma did Carlito's Way, Carlito's Way only a couple of years prior to this. So he had a working relationship with Pacino. He did Scarface with him many years prior. So they, they're they buddies, I assume. Hey, Luis Guzman on top of that. But mm-hmm. um, So Pacino initially was offered this role. And also Will Smith in 1998, which... 
I don't see that working out. Like, 1998 was when Will Smith had a rocket strapped to his ass, and, like, even when he missed, he never actually missed. Yeah. Like, like, like he would... Like, I've seen articles written about the, the career trajectory, the early career trajectory of Will Smith, and it's, like, master class shit, where it's, like, there was some, like, Lex Luthor big brain planning going on here for, like, planning out this guy's career, because it's... It worked out exceedingly well for him, at least from a financial standpoint. But mm-hmm. um, I'm curious, Brad, do you, like, how did you feel about Gary Sinise in this role and, and take into consideration those other two figures being offered the role? I think I, I prefer him over what they would have done. I, I just feel like Will Smith would have been a little too, I don't know if young is the right word, but I don't totally know if I would buy him as like a general, like somebody that high-ranking um, and maybe it's just because up to that point, he's kind of just played like very goofy characters. Like every, they all have a sense of humor, um, you know, like Independence Day, Men in Black. They've all got that kind of swagger. And I don't know if he would have been able to play like a, just a straight cut, you know. Well, obviously not a, a, you know, just straight cut by the books military guy. But initially that's how it appears. Um, so I like uh, I like Gary Sinise in it. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I buy him. for what his character does in that transition. And I think, uh, you know, him and Nick Cage, it does feel like they do have that history. Um, I did read, I guess, part of the reason uh, it didn't go to Will Smith is uh, he wanted a $12 million uh, paycheck for the role. So they uh, unfortunately had to say no to that. Well, I mean, I think this was around the time he was doing what, like Wild Wild West and stuff. Like he he was riding very very high again from a financial standpoint, not necessarily critical, but yeah, I I don't think I could have seen him playing a straight laced, and more importantly, I don't think he was prepared, maybe even to this day, uh, to play a straight up bad guy. Yeah, like I feel like he he's been fairly strategic about usually leaving the door open for his characters to be okay, like from a moralistic standpoint. Like, usually, at the very least, he plays, like, a repentant character, not just a fucking villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't, I don't, th- I think that the, the money thing was more just like a, I don't know, being kind to, to De Palma in the production, where it's like, Brian De Palma's name, like, even though he's kind of on the downturn at this point, like, his name carries a lot of weight. So it's like, you accept that phone call. Um, but you find a way out of that and just be like, I don't play fucking bad guys. Fuck off with that noise. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't think I could see Will Smith playing that. But I think the important thing is what you mentioned, the relationship, uh, because the director himself has gone on record, say, like addressing some of the complaints about the film and stating that like the narrative, like the reason why the conspiracy is made clear a lot earlier than traditionally would be the case is because in his mind the narrative was more about the relationship between our our hero quote hero and our antagonist. Um, the two of them have history with each other, and I think I think the movie wouldn't work unless you made sure to cast two people who come across as having that history, like that chemistry with each other. Mm-hmm. And the problem with Al Pacino would be one stature. Uh, your cinematography's fucked when one guy is a foot fucking taller than the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, I hate to say it, but Al Pacino stalking the hallways of a casino hotel uh, with a silenced pistol in a commander's uniform, that's not nearly as intimidating as Gary Sinise. And again, you're framing. You have to lower the camera about a whole fucking foot. Um, and also the age thing, where it's just like, I don't see them being friendly in the same way that i can believe gary sinise and nick cage would be although as i've been talking like this comes directly out my asshole um 
Kevin Bacon. What you think he could have done it? I could have seen. Yeah, Kevin Bacon would have been a good choice. I'm trying to think what was. Uh, I know he was in Stir of Echoes, which was written by uh, David Kep, who wrote this. So there is a bit of a connection there, and I think Stir of Echoes was like the year after this, maybe. Yeah, and he has a history of playing men in uniforms who are also assholes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so like, he, I think he could have done it. Because he he's not only played assholes, he's played scumbags. Like he's played really awful people, um, and also he's affable when he is asked to be. Like Tremors, man. Yeah. Like, like Val, that character's fucking awesome. Like so, Kevin Bacon has a very diverse skill set. Um, I I could have seen him doing it as well, but uh, Gary Sinise I thought did things just fine. Yeah, it was um, good casting. Unfortunately, he'd end up in Mission to Mars uh, with Brian De Palma in the director's seat. Uh, only a few short years later. Yeah. And that wasn't very good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, Brad. Between the Mar- the Mars movies of, of that era, um, Mission to Mars or Red Planet? Uh, do you have a favorite between the two? Neither neither is spectacular, but I'm just curious. Boy, I don't know if I've actually seen Red Planet. I know I've seen Mission to Mars, but it's been a long time. So I, I, got, I don't think I could comment either way, but I don't think I've actually seen Red Planet. Okay, well, I think Mission to Mars was the one everyone went to see, mm-hmm. but truthfully, I think Red Planet might be the superior film between the two. Mission to Mars is bizarre. Yeah. Like, it, it is a fucking weird movie. Like, like it structurally, it is a fucking mess. Um, but I will say this much, it has some cool kills. <laughs> like, that that's all I took away from that movie mm-hmm. uh, in terms of positives. It's like, wow, some people got got in kind of cool ways in this one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I need to revisit um, yeah, that. Beyond that, it's not a great film. But Red Planet, maybe check it out, Brad, just so you can uh, get all your, what, early 2000s Mars movies under your belt. Yeah, make a uh, night of it. <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh, but yeah, Nick Cage uh, runs across Gary Sinise, a.k.a. Kevin Dunn, uh, and uh, they have a little exchange here and this is where we have uh so much dialogue that is, is is written in that very conversational style that i really appreciate like this is a thing that i'm i'm, I'm beginning to understand not everybody's okay with is i i am at peace not necessarily knowing what's going on or or, or what all what all the beats in characters histories are i don't mm-hmm. need to know all that so long as the film knows what it's doing with all that information um, I don't like when it's just noise, um, but me personally, again, maybe this is a byproduct of me not really watching much television, like series format things. I'm, I'm comfortable with having a lot of question marks uh, hovering over characters' histories and their pasts. Um, but the, the conversational dialogue during this whole opening sequence, it, it's like, uh, we're not going to help you. Like, like We're just going to throw all this shit out there. The characters know what they're talking about. They know how they know each other, but it's up to you to pay the fuck attention and absorb all the information that could potentially be relevant Uh, so it's a very demanding film in that regard but this is where we see the two of them sitting ringside primo tickets uh fuck someday i'd I'd love to have this uh, because uh this is a weird thing but like i'm i'm a very i'm a huge boxing fan Uh, it's one of my very favorite things that i have so few opportunities to talk about because nobody gives a shit about boxing, especially in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. That's another reason why I didn't pick this movie because of that. But in the uh, first like five minutes of the movie, I was like, oh, there's another reason why this is a good choice for uh, this week's episode. Yeah, and I appreciate that because like any any time I get to see any sort of boxing on film, it it, it tickles me. I'm, I'm just happy to see it. 
like even if it's in a limited fashion but yeah these guys got ring seat ringside seats and brad there there are so many so many little details that the camera trains on uh throughout this this ringside conversation we get the woman in red Mm -hmm. uh we get the the we actually get an advance notice uh about the here comes the pain fella uh, the the guy that looks like uh, the beach bum uh, with the beer can, uh, <laughs> like we actually see him futzing with his ear, yeah, uh, bef- before he makes his big loud declaration of "Here comes the pain." But the camera like trains on him. We see him futz- futzing with his ear. It's like he's got a lot of wax in there. What's going on there? And then we have a a, a detail in the form of Gary Sinise pointing out that his security set. He's on security detail for the Secretary of Defense here. Um, one of his security detail has a. Uh, tracking device under his lapel and the movie takes special care to note that this is a tracking device gary sinise has the ability to track this tracking device Mm -hmm. please remember this by the time we get to the final reel of the film yeah (laughs) Um, and and we also get the uh element of i think it's brought up here maybe it might be brought up after the assassination but that uh gary sinise specifically asked to be on this detail like he specifically said it'd be best for him to take over this security detail because he knows rick he's he knows the area and he would be the best man for the job yes yes i I believe that is relayed to us just prior to the assassination so he he kind of lobbied for this position um but in the midst of all this i I really like how they they frame the boxing action in that we don't actually see any of it yeah because the the camera is transfixed on the important figures right now we'll get to the boxing later which you know makes me anxious because i want to see that shit but we'll get to it later but um for now the camera is just facing the people in the crowd and we hear the sounds of the fight and we actually hear the announcing team so you actually do get the information of what's happening in the ring and nick cage is reacting in in real time to what's happening we see him flipping the fuck out about his his guy who he placed the bet on uh, not doing so hot it's like you fucking bum it's like dude you've been following this guy since the 80s <laughs> like like you're just gonna shit on him like that like instantly mm-hmm. um but i think it's around this time that uh carlo gugino or jujin i don't know how the fuck to say her name I've i don't always, know how you say her name but she's great in this it's yeah googie uh, carla googie <laughs> she <laughs> she shows up and uh she's wearing uh, uh trademark hitchcocky and slash de palma uh, blonde wig mm-hmm. um she looks straight out of one of those films from like the 60s um and she's in disguise obviously um and she is making threats that uh the the sound in this film brad is another highlight uh, because one thing that's really curious about a lot of more modern productions is I feel like gross errors in the sound mixing are more apparent uh, than maybe they were in films of this era because the sound mix in this film is stellar. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's not a whole lot of like ugly ADR in there for the most part. Uh, there's really good use of of sound effects to create atmosphere and to create a sense of geography. Like especially when we get to like the scenes where the cameras transitioning between rooms and such like the sound mixing is stellar oh, like it, yeah it, i know what you're talking about that yeah scene. you know what i'm talking yeah, about it's, it's fucking so awesome. great but so many movies these days like you can't help like your ears just pick up on like oh well that was recorded recorded in post obviously they shot that conversation from the back of that person's head because they didn't get it all that day or because they got to the editing room and they realized we got to wrap this shit up. The movie doesn't flow right. But I didn't really detect a lot of that in this movie. So that's a, that's a very big feather in their cap for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the crowd scene is playing out. And we hear kind of from Nick Cage's perspective, like very 
choice words of dialogue. Like we hear that she's making a threat, but we don't hear the details as to what the nature of it is. Like we hear mention of like it's in the pocket or it's in your pocket. And she's like wagging a finger and, and we keep seeing Nick Cage like trying I'm trying to watch the fight, man. <laughs> Although not before and, he he does hit on her, uh, of course. It's kind of great because like she his initial reaction is like the suit's taken and then he sees her he looks her up and down as you do and he's like oh never mind you can stay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty great yeah, yeah and it fits his character and she's just like eh, anyway <laughs> like, but i do like that thing the aspect of only hearing bits of uh yes. her conversation because i actually was watching it and i thought about going back and uh, putting subtitles on and listening to that seen again just right after the fact but i was like no i'm just gonna keep let's just roll with it this is that's how it's intended i mean i'm not supposed to take in exactly everything that she says to him yeah like like you had said uh it's all about perspective and right now the, the reason why the camera is transfixed on nick cage on ricky santoro's because we're supposed to be in his headspace so the things that he's picking up on the details that he's keying in on are the ones that are important to the character and by extension us uh, so you don't got to get the whole fucking thing. Just get, like as long as you get the important bits and it all makes sense at the end, you're good. Um, so I yeah. appreciate the style of filmmaking. I mean, like, uh, you know, the movie, it throws a lot at you in the first 10 minutes. But honestly, by the time you get to the end of the movie, it's it's pretty basic. Like you'd have to be pretty uh, dense not to like at least get a basic understanding of what is happening <laughs> yeah and in some ways like it just occurred to me now but maybe that's the the film's biggest liability is that it opens too strong yeah where it's like there there was no way to measure up to the the quality of the filmmaking and the setup uh presented in the first 40 minutes of the film um thankfully we do have some set piece moments in the middle that really really do a lot to carry uh the energy mm-hmm. um but yeah in terms of like the narrative again the script is probably not the strongest part of the film um and the resolution doesn't help as well but the the journey up to that point there's some really good stuff in here um and everybody has different value systems me personally i can forgive some of those liabilities just for some of the images and some of the setup like i can i can retain that and just be like yeah it doesn't really matter that it didn't really amount to a, a stunning revelation or something it's yeah. like but the setup was so beautiful yeah it's like uh, a stephen king novel or something yeah. <laughs> it's a good comparison I, i'm all about the journey over the destination like uh, there's countless yeah. movies i can think of where they you know have a wet noodle ending but everything up to it is great and i'm not going to discount you know the the 80 some minutes that i loved of this movie just because the final 10 minutes are a wet noodle blanket you know I'll, I'll i'll enjoy that 80 minutes again and i'll watch the movie again and Try and force feed that ending until I actually delude myself into thinking it's good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I make that agreement with myself all the time, Brad. <laughs> it's already I started. I watch a lot of crap. It's already started. This time I watched it and I was like, you know, that ending's not as bad as I remember. But it's already started. <laughs> like the next time I watch Snake Eyes, I'm gonna be like, the ending's great. It's great. <laughs> and then somebody will walk you through it like beat by beat, and you'll be like, shut up! <laughs> like you're wrong. <laughs> But did you see the alternate ending where Gary Sinise gets run over by a ball? <laughs> it makes it so much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, long story short, uh, the Secretary of Defense is assassinated um, in the midst of a lot of confusion. So we get here comes the pain from the crowd, which 
obviously comes across as some sort of signal to somebody. We're not entirely sure who at this point. Uh, we hear the boxing match uh, meeting its conclusion in the form of a knockout. Uh, Nick Cage is not happy about that. And I believe he gets a phone call just before all this is unfolding. And it, it's the gal, the ring card gal, um, that he had spoken to just prior to this. And she's saying, hey, I'm up here in the stands. Look at me. And he looks out there. And then if you like, if you pay attention at all, the, we get a shot from his perspective. And it's like, there is one prop in the frame, center frame, that really stands out that we're just not going to talk about. We're not going to key in on it until it's important to the narrative, until we need that last revelation. But it's like, there's a, a fucking blimp with a giant eyeball painted on mm-hmm. it, center frame, big as life and twice as ugly. And for me personally, that's a thing that I notice. And I'm like, why is that there? What is that? <laughs> um, but the movie is just like, ah, oh, don't pay attention to that. Yeah. <laughs> never, never mind that. There's, there's stuff going on. And then, yeah, the secretary is shot. Um, everything, a, a trademark of De Palma. Uh, this plays out in slow motion. Uh, one of those trademarks of his that some people can do it, uh, but not as well as him, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I believe it's a reference to Battleship Potemkin, uh, the the steps sequence uh, from the Untouchables, the Untouchables, uh, the step, the train station steps action beat is, mwah. it's like masterclass. If you're gonna employ slow motion in an action scene, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can do it, but De Palma pulled it off. That movie, I. The movie's not great. It, it, it has its awesome moments, though, and that is one of the most awesome moments in it. But, yeah, the slow motion, uh, Sec Def gets shot in the fucking throat. He's gagging. The new guy's in the back puking his guts out. Blah! Blah! <laughs> <laughs> Truck tire! <Yeah. laughs> but Carl Gugino? 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 Like, I don't know. Yeah, she eats one in the arm. Uh, it turns out it's not nearly as bad as it looks. Like, the squib here is pretty meaty. Like, it looks like her arm just got wrecked. Mm-hmm. But as we'll see, it's like, no, it's not that bad. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a flesh wound. She's got Nick. Cause she's she, like, tough. She gets over. Yeah, she's a real tough lady. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, have you seen Sin City? She's a tough lady. You seen Spy Kids? Tough lady. <laughs> I think now, I don't I don't know if this is the best place to do it, but, you know, since we're doing full spoilers, let's just let's just get into it here. The, the feasibility and the just believability of this plan... Because I'm fine with, you know, any issues here, but in all honesty, I don't know about this plan. I don't think this is a very good plan. So, first of all, we're meant to believe that, uh, well, we'll get into this later, but uh, uh, Tyler is throwing the fight. And the here comes the pain is his si- his signal. Now, first of all, I've never been to a boxing match, but I have to think, it's going to be very, very loud. Like, that's a very, like... You know, banking your whole plan on him being able to hear that guy. I don't know. That seems a little sketchy. Also, so then he throws the fight. And the whole thing is that it's supposed to bring everybody up on their feet. Right? Is that what they say? So then you can get it. They say it'll bring everybody up on their feet. So you'll have a clear line, clear shot. That makes no sense to me. Because first of all, our assassin is above where the Secretary of Defense is sitting. If everybody stands up, that's going to make the shot harder. Wouldn't he want everybody sitting down? Because I I would not expect the Secretary of Defense to also stand up. Maybe he would, but he's an older guy. You know, there's a chance that he might stay sitting. And now you've got a bunch of people standing in front of him. Whereas before, if everybody's sitting, then you can 
you know, get an angle on him above, like, because you're above him and you can get an angle on his his melon and take him out. Like, why why does everybody need to stand up? I don't I don't understand that. Also, I mean, I can't remember. It, he wasn't like direct. Was he directly behind uh, Carla Gugino, or was it like a like a you know little bit like a kitty corner kind of thing? It was pretty much directly behind her. Yeah. So you've got her and him in the same sight line. So, I mean, if she, like, we're not going to expect her to stand up for the fight. So I, I don't, I guess I just don't understand what, why does everybody need to stand up other than maybe creating chaos? But I mean, they hear the shot anyway. Like, it's not like you hide the shot at all. Yeah. It, it's not, it's not exactly a 100% like assured production like like this is this is you're you're banking on a lot of things playing out the way you're hoping they it's will a shit plan let's just say it is a <laughs> it is a shit plan and it, it, like there are so many details in here but we may as well just go over the scenario so like honestly the answer to all your question is you don't do it that way you position the shooter behind and above mm-hmm. and just shoot him at the top of the melon or the back of the fucking head or something yeah. i mean you have spotters you can identify who he's supposed to be looking at uh, like that would be like don't have to worry about people standing it's like no i could just look down and shoot him on top of the fucking head and that's it mm-hmm. um and same goes for her because she was apparently part of the package as well like they were banking on her coming to visit him uh to, to pass some information his way and they wanted to off them both um we yeah, had the other element that like i was like whoa like that's how you decided to resolve that like was um like removing uh removing like possible elements that could trace back uh, to the people who organized this so the shooter is taken out of the equation instantly Mm -hmm. like like they set him up as a terrorist like an islamic terrorist or a middle eastern terrorist basically who has a grievance with the u.s military and so he's lashing out the secretary of defense they they plant a note on him (laughs) i like that we see gary sinise like very quickly uh, remove his earpiece yeah <laughs> and, like st- his his logitech earpiece and put it into his pocket it's like man you're really banking on nobody watching what you're doing yeah um people would have seen that yeah um i do but- love like where they position the shooter how he goes in that like little just like i don't even know like a little cubby and he knocks out the sign i, yeah, I, it, I that's just like such a cool little touch like i just love it that. is cool it's it's like a almost like a a, a booth but it doubles as a marquee yeah because uh, it, it has like the the magnetized like lettering and stuff on it but he like knocks out one of the letters and has a, a scoped like submachine gun in there so he has like a little a little booth to shoot from it's pretty cool but the way gary sinise offs him he shoots through the fucking door yeah yeah he just like dumps like a third of a magazine into the fucking door and it's like Dude, there could be a there could be kids there, man. <laughs> like, like yeah. honestly, it's a populated, it's a fucking arena full of people. Like, you, you could easily have shot like one of those bullets could have gone into a fucking kid's head or something. He doesn't even see the guy. He just sees he sees the barrel poking out from the booth. And he's just like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, I mean, it just also like causes issues with the believability of their plan. I mean, so you know, if they're going back over this and somebody's investigating this. They're going to be like, so you just you saw a, a, a skinny black thing poking out from around this corner. So you just unloaded, assuming that the guy was in here. And it's like, well, he was in there. But it's like, well, how did you know? Like, you know, it just, it just well, I mean, for real fuck's bad sake, it, it's a skinny black thing poking out from a booth that could have been a boom mic 
set up for Kevin Dunn, exactly. <laughs> like doing a report on the fight. And the way that the arena is, I you know, I've never shot a sniper rifle inside a boxing <laughs> arena. Okay, I don't, so I don't know this, but I would think there would be a lot of echoing and a lot of ringing out where you might not be able to place exactly where the shooter is. Yeah, it, it it's a little convenient, and on top of that, like Gary Sinise. Uh, He's the culprit. Like, we've kind of gone over this before. But, yeah, Gary Sinise, Commander Kevin Dunn, is the bad guy. He's the guy saying it all up. Uh, He has a grievance with the Secretary of Defense because uh, they have uh, the Air Guard missile system. Uh, Apparently, is being scrapped, and he's a strong proponent of it because he believes in a strong military because he's watched people die. He's heard people die. uh, And it was due to errors in technology or something. So he's like, we need these fucking missiles because... Because, yeah, uh, <laughs> but... I, I think that's that's pretty good. I like, you know, it gets into a lot of some of De Palma's other stuff, like a conspiracy. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, uh, highlighting uh, some some sins in the military industrial complex. And but going from, you know, Gary Sinise, you can sort of see where he's coming from, where he's like, I've seen people die in front of me. And he's like, if we're sacrificing some soldiers because this thing isn't 100 percent but it ultimately is for the greater good. You know, I think that's interesting. And obviously Carlo Gugino is like, well, we need to be aware. Like, we can't just, like, cover this up. Like, if there are people that are getting killed by this thing accidentally, even if it is saving soldiers down the line, we need to be aware of this and we need to, you know, shut it down potentially. And he thinks that uh, he can just put a Band-Aid over it, hopefully, in the future. Yeah, it's it's a moral conflict that actually jives very well with Nicolas Cage's personal conflict throughout the story, is that you have a situation where, but the data shows that what we're doing is wrong. It's like, well, this guy doesn't care about the data because he's he's seen firsthand, like, what can come of the data. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a difference of opinion. It's a difference of value system, honestly, where it's just like, we need to tell the truth. And the other person's like, well what if the truth what if ignoring the truth grants like saves lives down the road like there is some value in that but nick cage also has a similar dilemma in that he's a bad person being pushed to do the right thing and he's in conflict with himself where it's like what do i go with do i go with my gut do i go with my heart do i go with the straight facts yeah it Um, comes down to different people's perspectives back to perspective very much so um but yeah this this assassination setup is just sloppy as all get out I'm, but i'm totally fine with but i just you i'm know, fine it's with fun it. to it, pick it, apart like before you know how it like before you know the arrangement it it's compelling and mm-hmm. that's the most important thing is that you're interested to know and then when you do know it's like well it's it's okay but <laughs> but like the like the wanting to know part is the most important part of the setup but yeah um gary sinise excuses himself from his seat very conveniently because uh the camera makes sure to point out there's a a lady, a, a like strawberry like blonde or like a redhead with curly hair in a loud ass red dress that's strategically positioned to the front row opposite them. And it's like that's weird. That stands out a lot. <laughs> so it gives it gives Gary Sinise's character a very obvious reason as to why he's not in his seat when the shooting goes down. But he plays it off as if he's like going to interrogate her or something. And it turns out that she's working for him, as is the beach bum. Uh, here comes the pain man. Um, and when when we meet them again later in the film, Brad, I was like, I was not happy with their wardrobe. Like it was a bit on the nose. Like it, it was it was a little 
it, pl- it felt like it was playing to the cheap seats. Yeah, yeah. It's like, like there's supposed to be this reveal that it's like, oh, they were audience plants. They were working with Gary Sinise, but they're like dressed in like fucking boiler suits with ball caps. Yeah, and, and like combat boots and stuff. It's like, dude, did they really need to like be in their like GI Joe outfits? Pretty just obvious. To, yeah, just to make it known that they're they're like special operatives or something. Yeah, it's like no, could couldn't they just be in like a t-shirt and jeans or something it's like i can recognize the here comes the pain guy he sticks out same with the the redhead with the loud dress it's like they were engineered to stand out so i I didn't need that it was a little goofy especially because it's like a really important reveal that happens towards the midpoint of the movie where it's like this is the moment And, and even the visual language of the movie like gary sinise goes into a back room and he's like bathed in red light and the music takes on a more menacing tone it's like in case you didn't know, <laughs> like, Gary Sinise is not on the up and up. He's a bad guy. Yeah. He's a very, very bad guy. Um, but it, the visual language, is it's a little on the nose for me. But I appreciate effort. Like, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate it sometimes when it's more explicit like that. But, oh, Brad and I were talking about the uh, Netflix Daredevil show um, before we started recording. I just wanted to point out that... Uh, one of the like one of the first investigators that arrives on the scene when they lock down the arena right after the assassination uh is the priest um from the Daredevil show. Okay. And he he's he's instantly recognizable. Like he's he has a huge IMDb. I don't even know the guy's name, but it's just like one of those faces where I was like I know this guy and I I, I searched my brain. And I was like, "Oh, that's the that's the father from Daredevil." I was like, oh, in 1998, he had more hair back then. Yeah, <laughs> Just like Kevin Dunn and Nick Cage, for that matter. <laughs> but where do you want to go from here, Brad? Like, what's another scene you want to key in on? Um, well, we can mention uh, I like the reveal of when uh, Nick Cage notices uh, Tyler. Is it Lincoln Tyler? Is that his name? Um, yeah. During the chaos, you know, it's supposed to be that Lincoln Tyler... Uh, got knocked out, but Nick Cage notices that when the shots ring out, he's immediately like startled and his eyes open up and he's like, you know, freaked out. And so Nick Cage is like, hmm, was this guy actually knocked out or is something going on here? So he goes back to the uh, the tape. You know, the camera is the only thing that can tell the truth. And he sees that uh, there was um, a, I, you know, I've forgotten that about this aspect of it when I was watching this. And so you're watching uh, the tape and I was just like, man, that's a really bad looking punch. And I'm like, Oh, okay. It's intentionally <laughs> bad. Okay. And I was like, man, they really didn't, they didn't saw that very well. Um, so yeah, we know that uh, Lincoln Tyler took the fall and we uh, have a scene where Nick Cage confronts him. And uh, I, li- I like, uh, what's his name? Is it Stan Shaw who plays, yeah. I like him a lot, and I don't, I don't know him for many things, but he's, I think he's great as the boxer in this. He has a, a very distinct face. Mm-hmm. Um, like he really sticks out in any film he's in. He has a pretty dense filmography. I mostly remember him from Daylight, uh, which is a underseen uh, Stallone uh, disaster thriller from the '90s around this time. Uh, he plays like I think a cop or a security guard who gets like his neck broke at one point. Um, and he he has he has a very interesting tool set as a as an actor, uh, because as you see in this film, he is a physical presence. He's a big fucking guy, um, but on top of that, like he can play a very wide range, and his and his face is very very capable of of conveying a lot of different emotions. So he it was nice seeing him have 
a decent amount of dialogue because as soon as you see him you're just like that guy's interesting looking yeah i wonder if he's just here to throw punches and then you get to see like oh no he's here to have a whole a whole lot of dialogue and he actually sticks around thankfully towards the end of the film uh, to actually you know throw some more hands uh, which i appreciated but um I really like the the interrogation basically uh, between Nick Cage and him mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because he it I'm not going to lie he is fairly articulate for a boxer <laughs> um for I've been following the sport my entire life uh most boxers don't deliver interviews uh as capably as he does here um but that's neither here nor there uh, anyway Nick Cage initially like plays warm to him and that like he comes up he's like could you sign an autograph for my son and like he's like, hey, look at my class ring. We're the sa- we're the same graduating class. <laughs> and he's just like, okay. And mm-hmm. and what's interesting is like his his manager is just hovering around him. And by the way, the manager is like a red herring almost uh, because he's positioned right next to Nick Cage during the fight, and he's just got like a a radio or a phone just attached to his ear the entire fight. He doesn't say a word. But we see this big honking electronic prop just smashed against the side of his head. It's like, huh, maybe he's in on it. It's like, not so much. Uh, He's just a manager who's uh, maybe a little too closely tied to his product. But um, I like the the progression of the conversation. It it goes from like cordial to all of a sudden it's pretty high tension, pretty high conflict. Um, But yeah, this is where we learn that uh, Lincoln Tyler was basically brought in to throw the fight uh, on cue uh, to facilitate the the uh, very convenient shooting that Brad and I had outlined. But um, what's really cool about this scene, though, is that we have the dialogue scene, but then we cut uh, to a replay of the opening events of the movie from a different perspective, from Lincoln's perspective, from like his literally eyeballs, a POV. Fact. Yeah, yeah, and it's really cool because we have we see him in the dressing room that we saw him coming out of. Like at the, during the opening sequence of the film, we even see Nick Cage play out the pantomime of saying, "Hey, Tyler!" Like he runs up to him, they shut the door in his face, and then we see Luis Guzman leave and stuff. And there's just a like a lot of buzz in the dressing room about like his manager's upset about the bookie and about the drug dealer Luis Guzman, everybody's favorite Luis mm-hmm. Guzman, uh, just hanging out in there with a bunch of floozies and stuff. And also, like it's important to note that Lincoln Tyler's supposed to be undefeated at this point, so him giving him throwing this fight took some coercion like like it, this was not something he gave up willingly like this took a lot uh to string him along but um when nick cage is coming into the dressing room we see a a, a fucking hole punched in the wall and uh we actually see how that happened and there's this really awesome shot that i'm, I'm not positive how they pulled this off brad i'll have to i'll have to go back and re-examine it but we go from a POV of Lincoln to the camera just kind of like sidles over. And then all of a sudden we're looking at a reflection of Lincoln Tyler and his manager. And he's, he's shadow boxing in front of the mirror. And it's like, Whoa, where the transition happened. If there was a transition, was that just like really well choreographed? Like it, it jumped out at me. I was just like, I'm not quite sure what I saw, but it was fucking cool. Yeah. It's a really cool shot, you know, switching out of that POV into just like a, a standard shot almost. Uh, and I think it was just, basically well choreographed i guess i mean um because you do see some pov of him throwing some punches and uh that's like almost you know right before it switches out of that basic pov but i think it's a real cool shot i i like that oh yeah no it jumped out at me and i am gonna have to go back um 
especially because there are a couple of screen captures i need from this movie they're all they're all nick cage making dumb faces by the way (laughs) there are a couple moments in here that one i think is when he's making a run for the elevator uh around the 40 minute mark um there's when he's passed out and gary sinise pulls him up by the hair oh that i remember that one (laughs) (laughs) He he looks pretty fucking bad yeah um and then the last one i want is i want to make a gif of gary sinise deer in the headlights turning around and grabbing the door handle and discovering it's locked yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so perfect he's just like it, it can't help but be comedic it's supposed to be like a, a pathetic like tense moment but it's just like uh <laughs> he's just, just gonna like, try and get out of here uh, yeah leave. he's like oh, i'm just gonna slip out of here it's like shit it's locked <laughs> it's so pathetic mm-hmm. but anyway we get a recreation we actually get to see the fight this time and it's not shot from pov but we actually get to it's narrated by Lincoln, um, and we actually get to see the fight this time, um, and we get to... It's really well-constructed, and there's a piece of music here. By the way, the composer is uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto, uh, who is very skillful, but I, I will point out that one of my favorite scenes in the movie, um, the, the the hotel room, uh, that, that pursuit sequence, that extended uh, suspenseful beat, I, I was getting a lot of Alan Silvestri vibes, uh in particular from the use of the brass it has a lot of like just like type brass notes Mm -hmm. um but it takes on a lot of different tones a lot of different emotions and the like there's a very heartfelt very very emotional piece of music that plays during these more like confessional moments like these more like truth bearing moments in the film like when carlo gugino is uh kind of spilling her guts and when lincoln tyler is doing the same and during the finale of the movie where Nick Cage, Nick Cage, uh, I'm sorry, like, like as much as I, I compliment the editing and the cinematography in this movie, my God, Nick Cage, could you walk any fucking slower? Yeah. Like, like, I was like, does this scene really need to be this long? It's like, it got a, it got a little tedious at one point. It's maybe the only time I'll say that about some of the more stretched out moments in the film. Um, but yeah, we see that Lincoln Tyler is conflicted about throwing the fight. Um, and, and, as is the case with with all perf- all actual athletes and or fighters acting is not something that comes naturally mm-hmm. which is what results in the the botched phantom punch um which is horribly botched and on top of that he almost knocks out the other guy out of frustration like just just casually almost knocks him the fuck out and he's like oh wow that could have gone really bad yeah. <laughs> I, I i like his uh explanation though of the phantom punch where he was just like he was just so into the, you know, he was into selling it. He's like, here's where it's going to happen. And then the guy missed him and he's like, oh, it's too late now. I'm already doing it. And, uh, you know, that's like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And at one point, Nick Cage actually does bring up uh, the infamous slash famous uh, Sonny Liston and Muhammad Ali uh, fight, the the rematch where Sonny Liston just kind of, they call it the Phantom Punch. Like that's actually like you can Wikipedia that shit. Like if you just type in the Phantom Punch, that's what you'll get. Um uh, so many times like boxing is a very corrupt sport always has been um so many times like thrown fights uh just don't go well because like i said the, these people speak their truth through through violence like it's it's not something that comes naturally to to just like put on a performance and so sometimes you actually do see things like this play out and it's just, it's utterly unconvincing most of the time so it's like it's very fitting that like he kind of sucked <laughs> at throwing a fight um, but one one like weird trivia factoid, and I'll, I'll get off the boxing thing, is that uh, his opponent, uh, I think their name is Ruiz. Uh, you see it on their trunks. 
um, and is wearing Mexican flag trunks. What's really what's cute um, now that we have like hindsight is that uh, there wasn't a heavyweight Mexican champion in the sport of boxing until like two years ago. And their name is Ruiz, oh, wow. <laughs> like, um, Andy Ruiz, uh, to be more specific. But yeah, the, this film uh, represents like an instance where it, it was a it was a throne fight. But hey, uh, many years ahead of schedule, we got a we got a Mexican champion bearing the heavyweight title. So <laughs> De Palma knew. We got in fiction. <laughs> yeah, De Palma knew. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he he knew about boxing. He didn't know where his career was going. No, no. <laughs> he's like, ah, Mission to Mars. That'll be the one they remembered. Yeah, before. <laughs> surely. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, the recreation of the fight is is a very cool moment. I like that they actually take their time with it. Again, set pieces, man. I like that they actually made a scene out of it because this easily could have just been dialogue. Mm-hmm. This easily could have just been a couple seconds of the film, just the highlights or something. But no, we actually get to see a decent amount of the in-ring action and it's all narrated and we actually make this Lincoln Tyler character a character instead of just like a plot device or something. Yeah. Um, at one point I want to point out that uh, there is a conversation like towards the midpoint uh, between Nick Cage and Gary Sinise that takes place in a weird like diorama room. Yeah. It's, it's a strange location. The production design is a little loud. It's a little weird. I was getting some Scarface vibes um the uh like the tropical sunset uh painting hanging in the background behind them it was reminding me of like the midpoint of scarface uh where it's he's he's not is he a is he a murray brother um i forget the actor's name but anyway uh he's he's like the corrupt uh police official in scarface who has a bullet in his gut for the entire conversation mm-hmm. he lets out one of the most satisfying fuck you <laughs> in cinema history as his final words but yeah the, the sunset painting here i was like same production designer maybe but then we get another uh pov sequence at one point uh this time from gary sinise's standpoint yeah and this is where i was pointing out him shooting through the fucking door because <laughs> yeah. like wow you were right quick about that <laughs> yeah and this um, is but basically we have a fic- kind of a fictionalized account of his perspective on the matter yeah one is one point where the the pov uh lies to us because yes. what he says isn't actually what happens and uh you know there's some great uh moments between uh nick cage and gary sinise in this uh sequence when they're going over what happened um because gary sinise says that the whole thing was he was distracted by this woman with the red hair he just couldn't take her eyes off her chest he couldn't take his eyes off her chest and that's why he said he missed out on why he screwed the pooch basically he was too (laughs) distracted so nick cage has got a good line he said he was like she was there basically to distract you that was her whole point and nick cage has a line he goes that was the plan to give you a boner (laughs) (laughs) yep congratulations you're human (laughs) also i i gotta say uh and i don't know if this was meant to be like a little tongue-in-cheek i don't know but uh basically nick cage is like listen you know you're my friend i'm not gonna tell them what happened we don't need to mention this woman uh, and how she distracted you. We don't want you to get in trouble there. And so Nick Cage, he says, he's like, you're my good friend. And he goes, loyalty's my only vice. And it's like, first of all, you've got a lot of other vices, seemingly. And also, I mean, you're cheating on your wife. So I don't think loyalty is your vice. Yeah. I mean, it works in the context with the two of them. But uh, it kind of made me laugh. Yeah, actually, that is one thing that I, I did mention that Gary Sinise was probably the right pick because he seems to 
have chemistry with Nick Cage. He does seem believable as a potential friend of his. It, it would have been nice to have them have more like real buddy buddy interactions. Mm-hmm. Just like like because Gary Sinise, I mean, it's a little weird having him be in dress uniform the entire movie. Like it, it, it comes across as like physically kind of stiff. Um, it would have been nice to have that have them like have some more like I don't know frat boyish type interactions or something. Show that like. Yes, even though he's wearing the commander's uniform, it's like no, he, he's he has a past. He he was he's from the neighborhood. Like he's one of the guys. Like maybe just having them have like a a big ugly hug of some sort, yeah. just you know something something like that. But but yeah, this POV lies, secrets and lies. Um, basically, he it's a false recreation of of the interactions that Gary Sinise said claimed to have had with the redhead um, in like the in the back area of the arena. Um, and then, yeah, we get to see him dump a fucking clip into this guy from behind a wall. And Nick Cage is like, yeah, okay, I'll believe that. <laughs> um, um, and then we get one of my favorite supporting players uh, in cinema, Mike fucking star. I love Mike star. Mike star is a star him and Kevin Dunn. It's like, yeah, you're doing it right, man. You got all the, all the best supporting guys with questionable hairlines. Mike star just makes me smile. Mm-hmm. Like, his it, it, like his first appearance in the film you don't even see him you just hear that voice and you're just like oh i know who that is we're about to have a great time and then we see that like this is mike star kind of playing against type like he's he's not playing like a heavy he's not playing like a, a sleazy type he's he's the most competent security operator in the history of casino yeah like he is on the fucking ball. <laughs> like he he this movie wouldn't happen without Mike Starr. Like Nick Cage wouldn't find Carlo Gugino he without Mike Starr. Yeah. Mike Starr is the fucking man. Yeah. <laughs> He's so competent. He's like Chris Farley in Wayne's World. Like, wow, that's a really well informed security guard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mike Starr, he's just like, what camera you want? When you want it? Right now. I got it. And it's like, I'm gonna do some shit. I'm gonna use. I'm gonna use this camera. I'm gonna look at this guy's driver's license. I'm gonna look him up in the books. I'm gonna find his room number for you, Nick Cage. I got you, Nick Cage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then he loses his heart pills and he dies before you can give him the room <laughs> number. <laughs> it's like, yeah. would you give me? Would you give me Camacho? The yeah, the guy who plays Pitsy from Punisher Warzone is the other very very competent security operator it's like it's like oh shit i got you the rat poison mike star i'm sorry too much hot sauce <laughs> too much hot sauce my ulcers <laughs> oh my ulcers i, I uh, <laughs> yeah I, I like the scene with uh him and the cameras again cameras tell the truth cameras are telling yep. and uh um i love when they're because they're looking for the uh the red-headed woman they're trying to find her in the uh, uh arena the casino and uh, I love they're going through, and eventually they find Carla Gugino, and Nick Cage goes, "That's her." And Mike Starr goes, "I thought you said she had red hair." And he's like, "No, that's another one <laughs> or something." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, "It's a different hot lady. Yeah. She's got she got blonde hair, <laughs> man. I'm trying to find some bomb shells, man." <laughs> mm-hmm. But but yeah, uh, they end up looking for Carla. Gugino instead because they see her uh, hanging out on the casino floor and it took me a second again very similar to the daredevil guy uh, I know I know this fella from Malcolm in the Middle uh, okay. he was the store associate that was always pining for uh, Malcolm's mother um, Jane Kaxmerick or however that's pronounced uh, this fella's name is David Anthony Higgins um, aka Nedry Light 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure he and Wayne Knight were in many casting offices opposite each other. I probably had a very contentious relationship in the industry, <laughs> but um, <laughs> this guy plays his role like to a T. Like he, they cast him; they knew what they were looking for, and he does it quite ably. But um, this kind of begins uh, maybe one of my favorite sequences in the entire movie. Yeah, uh, basically, it's Nick Cage utilizing uh, the resources of Mike Starr's security office to look for Carlo Cugino, who's seeking cover, like seeking shelter in the form of cozying up to this guy. Partially as a human shield, because he's a big guy. He's wide. You know, you can take refuge. If if someone pulls a gun, it's like you got a lot of mass you can, like, hide behind. At one point, she's like, I need a hug. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. why? It's like, because I don't know about this Gary Sinise guy. He's got crazy eyebrows. He could be up to no good. <laughs> but uh, it's a very extended sequence where we have Nick Cage chasing them. We have Gary Sinise in the same fucking elevator as them. And again, she she susses out that like well, I don't know about this guy. Like he's he's up to no good. Um, and we have Nick Cage hopping on the radio. He's trying to get Mike Starr to help him find out like what what floor are they getting off on, man? And that's like he because of the way cameras are positioned, he can't actually figure that out. I can't he's see the like, buttons. I can't see the buttons. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nick Cage. I can't see the buttons. <laughs> it's like, but like I said, uh, he uses one of the cameras and he, he actually rolls back the footage. He rolls back the tape. Very resourceful Mike Starr. Yeah. Um, and he takes a look at uh, at this fella that Carlo Gugino is hanging out with. He looks at his driver's license, and he gets his name, and he asks the booking people, like, what room is this guy in? And he finds out the room number. He's like, I got you, Nick Cage. He's, uh, he's on room, He's on uh, floor 35. And he's just like, he gets the room number him. And Gary Sinise is, like, in the elevator with him, so he knows what floor they got off on. But he doesn't, he doesn't want to be super conspicuous, so he gets up. Gets off on the the floor above them, so he has to walk down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go down the the stairs. It'll take a minute. And Nick Cage is like, "Thanks, Mike Starr. You're like super competent, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're a fucking genius." <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love the tracking shots of going up and down these these hallways because I I don't know maybe they used like a series of mirrors or something to extend these hallways, mm-hmm. but they look like endless. It's and, cool. It's and, a cool look. It looks fantastic, and and the the gaudy production design on top of that. Yeah, like, even like in the, the hotel rooms, you know, very just like brash. Yeah, it, it it feels it feels like from a different time. Like it, it the color palette feels almost like Hitchcockian in that it's like you know, in nineteen sixties like color palette, like very loud, very like pastel or something. And the the design of the hotel, it's a fucking Atlantic City casino hotel. You expect it to be loud and ugly looking. Yeah, um, and it certainly looks genuine it, it's really cool stuff but yeah all it is really is just people walking up and down hallways with the the soundtrack just kind of it's very like traditional scoring here like again it feels slightly antiquated but it works yeah it's a little um, generic but yeah definitely it gets the job done um but the the real show-stopping moment though brad that uh, i had hinted at earlier and you want to talk about this this is where gary sinise puts his ear to a door because he doesn't know exactly what room he needs to get to um, but the the cinematography here, just like, whoa, somebody oh, yeah. cared. Like, somebody really tried. <laughs> it's a banger. Yeah, so we get yeah. an overhead shot of, you know, where we're looking down on the set. And we go into the room. We go over the walls into the room. And you're thinking, okay, is this going to be the uh, room where our, you know, Carlo Gugino is staying? And no, there's another couple in this room. And we continue overhead shot into the next room and this is a different room entirely i think is this the one where there's like a a 
bunch of guys just partying and going crazy, or was there another one in between there? Uh, the first one is a, a woman uh, really, really, really wanting to bang, yeah, and her dude, her dude getting ready to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and then we head into the frat room, which we did see some guys in the hallways earlier carrying a keg. Yep. Yeah. So this is clearly their room, and then yeah, we we go into uh, the sleazy guy that uh, Carlo Gugino is hanging out with. We go into his room, um, but this is where the sound mixing that I was talking about earlier is just phenomenal because every transition between these rooms is so skillfully conveyed. Where it's like we get the ambient sound of the room, but during those transition points, when the camera is literally between walls, like between rooms the the dampening of the sound and the transition into the next soundscape it feels so naturalistic mm-hmm. it's so awesome like it, it it's a really skillfully choreographed scene um then the final part of it is carl gugino in the restroom of the hotel room uh cleaning her gun wound which has been present since the beginning of the movie it turns out it's just it's just a flesh wound not yeah. a big deal <laughs> By the way, like the opening moments of the movie, like the first 20 minutes or so, she is covered in fucking blood. Yeah, yeah. And we they actually do a pretty good job of having extras like notice her, but it's nobody important. It's just like people who are trapped in the arena. It's not like cops and officials. And they even like take special care. Again, like special attention to detail showing like her maneuvering through the arena area. And we see that the reason why none of the cops are accosting her because she's fucking covered in blood mm-hmm. during an assassination. <laughs> uh, no, no one's bothering her because there's like a fist fight happening in the crowd. Like we actually see other cops passing her because there's like security personnel throwing hands and stuff in the crowd. So it's like, oh, they're in, they're busy. They can't deal with her right now. But um, yeah, th- this overhead shot is incredible. I. I haven't seen it, but I've seen the opening of it. Um, Into the Void, uh, I believe, has a similarly constructed opening sequence. And the other one that comes to mind is a Minority Report. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a really awesome sequence in there, uh, shot in a very similar style. Um, Really, really awesome stuff. It takes a lot of planning uh, to execute something like this, but it sells beautifully in this movie. But anyway, uh, the sleazy guy uh, gets uh, blue balls. Um, <laughs> he's. I, I love the bit when he's like undoing his belt, because she's like, "Can I just like have a minute?" Like she's trying to make it known that I'm not here to bang you. Yeah. Like I, I know, I know you really had your heart set on that, um, but I'm just not here for that. I just need to hide out. And by the way, she lost her glasses, so all the shots from her perspective through this middle chapter in the movie are blurred mm-hmm. horribly, uh, which makes her especially vulnerable. Um, but one time, at one point, she sits down and he's like, "Oh, you want to blow me?" And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he starts doing his belt, and she's just like, "God damn it, no!" And like, there's, you... <laughs> there's also, unless I just missed it earlier, there's also the reveal of uh, when finally she just like straight up tells him no, and he uh, pulls out of his pocket and puts puts his wedding ring back on, and he's like, "Well, that I'm a happily beautiful. married man anyway. What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> no, that was beautiful because yeah, it's not revealed until that, like when yep. he's coming to the realization nothing's gonna happen tonight. We see him like just reach into his pocket, and he has like a wad of cash that he was like hiding in a different pocket, presumably because he really didn't want to pay her. <laughs> and then uh, we see the wedding ring pop on, and then he tries to like blame her, like you're a devious devil woman. Like I never would have done that anyway. <laughs> but he's like trying to kick her out, and then Nick. It, 
we're expecting Gary Sinise at the door, and then Nick Cage ends up being at the door, and he kicks the guy out of his own room. (laughs) And I love when he just storms off down the hall, and he's like, this hotel sucks. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's maybe one of the most artificial lines in the entire movie, but coming from him, it kind of works. Like I would expect that from a guy like that. Yeah, and he runs into Gary Sinise, and uh, Gary Sinise is like, what's going on? He's like, some guy just stormed in my room. <laughs> he's like, I mean, I mean he's in his dress right. uniform. <laughs> he's like, what guy? Where? <laughs> also, he takes him back there. I don't know why your first reaction would be, if you had the key, why you would storm off and just start screaming about how this hotel sucks. I, I would yeah. think my first reaction would be to use the key and get back in my room, but I guess I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, you're a big guy. You're, you, I mean, you got, you got some pounds yeah. on the cage. Take your chances, man. Yeah. Take a swing. <laughs> like, <laughs> But yeah, no, that was a weird moment where it's like, oh, he had the key? Because he yeah. was like banging on the door. And I was like, I thought he didn't have it. And then he he came back. It's like, oh, you could have just gone right back in. Like, wow, okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Gary Sinise goes in there and immediately just pulls out his silenced pistol and like uses it to open the bathroom door. And then the guy's just like, is that a silence handgun? And he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't comment on it at all. He's just like, what'd the guy look like? It's like, well, he's... It's kind of funny looking. <laughs> it's like I don't know, just not not particularly like funny looking. Just just real funny looking. <laughs> but this is where we get the uh, the stairwell conversation that Brad and I had mentioned earlier. It's kind of cute, actually. Again, calling back to uh, Brian De Palma's long legacy in film, dating back many decades. Um, it's like shot entirely in like soft focus, mm-hmm. and it's like this is like old school Hollywood stuff when you have a your leading lady on film and stuff. And it's, it's just the two of them, Nick Cage and her sitting down on the steps and him doing his like sincere, like doing his sincere best to like get her to open up. So he's actually very kind to her. By the way, that, that conversation with uh, Lincoln Tyler, one of my favorite bits is the callback to the, the uh, autograph. Cause he opens the conversation being like, oh, I'm a big fan. Could you sign an autograph for my son? And then, then, like, when he starts getting heated, when he makes that transition uh, from being cordial to, like, antagonistic, he's like, sign the fucking autograph! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so great. But with her, soft touch. She yeah. has a bullet in her arm. She looks a little rattled. She's half blind. Maybe maybe take it easy. Um, but, yeah, this is kind of where she spills her guts and explains the entire situation that Brad and I were talking about, about the situation with the the faulty missile system and the Secretary of Defense maybe having some beef uh, with the Department of Defense. And uh, I think she actually, like, outlines basically the entire scenario, like the entire plan of the assassination, because I think we see the, uh, quote, terrorist, uh, the agent who is assigned to basically pose as a terrorist. Um, we actually see him, like, we see all the players basically backstage uh, putting on their earpieces and getting into position. Uh, am I wrong on that? Uh, I think this is where that happens, yeah. Um, and this is where we get like full-on De Palma mode where it's like, you know what was missing from this movie? Fucking multicam, brah! Mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, I failed to mention uh, during the uh, recreation of the fight, uh, during, the, during the scene where we see Lincoln Tyler's perspective on the actual boxing match, I failed to mention uh, one of... De Palma's trademarks is uh, split diopter shots, uh, which basically means the thing in the foreground's in focus. There's a little like smudge outline of them, and you, and the thing in the background is also in focus. Um, so we actually get to see that there, and it's like ah, 
I know that. And then here we get multicam, bruh, where it's like we got the frame cut down the center and we get to see all the things happening parallel to each other. And it's really fucking awesome because it's like we get to see the assassin. We get to see Nick Cage in the crowd. We get to see the boxing match. And then the other side of the frame, we get to see just Carlo Gugino's end of things, mm-hmm. like all the things that were muddled, like all the things that were muffled. Um, all the dialogue is now clean and, and clear it's all from her perspective, and then it all comes together beautifully when the bullet is fired, and we have both from the assassin's post and Carlo Gugino uh, talking to the Secretary of Defense. We actually see the like squib blow out of his throat, and it's just this awesome like punch moment where it's just like, yeah, love when a plan comes together. Yeah, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a thing that you'll see in a lot of De Palma films. Like maybe one of the loudest and funniest examples of it, I think, anyways, Carrie. Um, they're, they're all gonna laugh at you <laughs> they're all gonna laugh at you <laughs> it's like that three minutes or whatever <laughs> like, yeah but yeah, but yeah it's a thing that uh is not used all the time uh I, I feel like maybe it's it's due for a comeback i could be wrong on that brad i don't i probably don't see as many contemporary films as you do I'm always slow getting to the new shit. Yeah, there's not a ton. I'm thinking, you know, like De Palma uses it quite a bit. There's one moment in his movie Sisters uh, where it's, uh, you know, there's a split screen and it's not like cutting between different perspectives or anything. It's just one, you know, shot, one sequence on like side of the screen is a group of people trying to dispose of a body in a apartment or a hotel room and then the other half of the screen is these people who are coming up to go into the hotel room and so there's the suspense of will they get rid of the body in time before and so that almost kind of reminded me a little bit of the mix of the the hallway chase with you know the split screen almost no that's that's really cool like i i i have blanks i need to fill in on my de palma viewing obviously i'm a fan so even his bad shit i would be I would be down to check out mm-hmm. uh, just because his style, as long as that's preserved, fine. Like, yeah. I can forgive so much as long as I can tell it was made by the man. Um, so, yeah, I've seen a lot of his earlier work. Sisters is in the Criterion Collection as well. So, uh, fantastic. Looking to boost your numbers there. That's a, that's a good one. Okay. I may have to look into that one. Um, but, oh, by the way, uh, tangent, short one promise um <laughs> i don't know how many uh, pc games uh, you play brad i know you got you got yourself an xbox is that yeah. correct yeah um there's a uh, a game studio called puppet combo uh the, the kind of their gimmick is that the graphical presentation of their games is that of like a playstation one title okay but they make contemporary releases but the like the polygonal like jagged edged polygonal figures and the sound is meant to sound antiquated. It's yeah. meant to sound like it's from 1998. Anyway, they have a, a fucking awesome horror game called Murder House mm, that I yeah. I think you would love, Brad, because it's uh, basically there's a, a man in a bunny costume uh, out to get you, and he's going to fucking tear your head off. And every time he appears in the game, uh, there's very little options to combat him. Uh, but every time he appears, the game splits into multicam. Uh, so you get a you get half of the frame dedicated to showing where he is in the building that you're in, um, and your familiarity with the building becomes extensive because of the repetition of navigating through it. Okay. And the other half of the frame is is you controlling your character. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like being in a slasher movie where it's like, oh fuck, I know exactly where he is, and it's pretty fucking close. Yeah. And then you have to negotiate that, like knowing full well where instead of like 
having to maneuver the camera in such a way where you can like keep one eye on him and like navigate it's like the game supplies you with where he is it's just a matter of can you can you act quickly enough um mm-hmm. and the 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 use of sound and the multicam is massively effective <laughs> um, so maybe look into it that does sound fun yeah it sounds like it'd be right up my alley it has very like because of the graphical presentation the the system requirements are very slim yeah like, it doesn't require a monster pc to run it so maybe look into it but anyway um this uh this uh staircase conversation wraps up with some of the more impressive acting moments from nick cage because we really we talked about this earlier but basically this is him trying to reason his way out of acknowledging that Gary Sinise is indeed his best buddy, basically Mm -hmm. is indeed the culprit here. And he goes from like being in complete denial to all of a sudden, like trying to spin a theory that's like, you lost your glasses, right? Yeah. yeah. You're fuck. You're fucking blind, man. (laughs) And um, I I like how she uh, is slightly afraid of him to the point where she goes, she starts to say, Oh yeah, maybe I did lose my glasses. It's like, he's, you know, he's getting pretty fired up, so she kind of starts agreeing with him, even though she knows he's wrong. Yeah, that that moment, like, it's good on her as well, uh, Carlo Gugino's performance, because she's, like, tearing up, and uh, this lady's been through the ringer this whole night. Like, she's not she's not in a healthy headspace. And, yeah, when he when Nick Cage flips out on you, you take notice. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sorry, if you're in an emotional state and you have a bullet in your arm, you may just want to get it over with and just be like, okay, whatever you say, bro. Whatever you say, like just just stop yelling at me. Like just could you put your eyes back in your sockets, please? <laughs> put those things away; they're dangerous. Um, but I love that he goes from that to all of a sudden, like he can't ignore the truth any longer. Like mm-hmm. he's he's like maybe maybe you couldn't see. Like how could you be sure? Like and he's just like reasonable doubt kind of stuff. He's just rattling off a lot of scenarios where it's it's reasonable to. See. It's like we're in a courtroom essentially. Yeah. But th- but then he like without her saying anything he just like oh you lost your glasses after the shooting so none of that works even if I want it to fuck <laughs> and the whole time he's just he's just so frustrated with the fact that he he as much as he'd care to look the other way he just can't and uh, one of the more awesome shots in the movie happens here where there's a beat there's a lull in the conversation we get that overhead shot of them on the staircase oh, yeah. together that's great just an infinite staircase down into the depths of hell yep. mm-hmm. it's it's purely for whimsy it doesn't really contribute a whole lot to the narrative but my god it's a fucking beautiful shot yeah it looks it's like, like if i was paintings there, right i would imagine yeah. yeah i don't i wouldn't expect a staircase this long no i don't think so <laughs> yeah um but it's a beautiful shot it's like one of those things if you have the opportunity to put the stuff on film you you do it um but yeah then we cut back to uh john hurd and uh, he makes his sole contribution to the film. Essentially, <laughs> it was a good fucking plan. <laughs> like, it's basically not just a him. good plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's just basically him bitching at Gary Sinise about like I made investments. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, we never um, see him get any uh, comeuppance though. So I think there's some you know some commentary there where you know Gary Sinise he gets what is coming to him, but. John Hurd, as far as we know, might get out scot-free. Yeah, it's a very uh, Brian De Palma or Oliver Stone-style sentiment of, like, the, the the real villains don't necessarily get their comeuppance. Yeah. Like, like, the person who pulled the trigger or whatever, sure. But the person who asked that trigger to be pulled, maybe not so much. 
Fuck, uh, man. I got to yeah. watch JFK. You do, actually. I've I seen do it. too. It's just, I've, I've got to watch it again. No, I, I had the exact same thought, actually. Like, um, I don't know what it is. It just popped up into my head yeah. the other day. I think I think it was because I was at a comedy show the other day and somebody was doing a, a JFK impressionation. And I was like, huh, I really want to watch that guy get shot again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, but anyway, it has been on my mind as well, and I do enjoy that film quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, anyway, uh, this is where uh, Nick Cage is now trying to pursue the truth and justice. Like he's he's kind of made his face turn essentially, uh, as opposed to a heel turn. And this is where we finally call back uh, to the ring card girl and the literal eye in the sky. Um, that once again, I'm sorry, uh, my eye immediately was drawn to this thing, but apparently Nick Cage's brain doesn't work that way. But basically, it's my understanding that it was just happenstance. Like, it's it just serendipity that, that he just happened to give his number to her and she called him at just the right time to say, hey, I'm up in the stands. And and then he, we see him on the arena floor remembering, like, playing out the scenario of the assassination again and trying to find the details he missed and of course, it's the literal eye in the sky. It's a blimp with an eyeball in it that we learn is basically a sky cam yeah. uh, for an arena, which is a thing that we we see commonly implemented today. But in 1998, I'm sure this was very novel. It reminds me of uh, I don't know if this was an influence at all, but uh, a couple Dario Argento movies play with the idea of somebody witnessing something and them having like the key like they, they they know it deep down but in their subconscious but they can't access what it is they saw um i know the bird with the crystal plumage is that where he keeps revisiting the the first murder or whatever and he's like man something was off with it but i can't figure out what it was and so eventually by the end of the film finally it clicks and he's like oh that's what was off with it and in this one he plays it out back again and he's like oh there was a giant floating eye in the sky maybe i should look into that I mean, you you very well may be correct in that assumption, uh, or that theory, rather, uh, because there are a lot of parallels established between Giallo and De Palma's early filmography, mm-hmm. especially. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if he directly was referencing one of those films. Um, Dressed to Kill, in particular, is like, is, is this a Giallo? <laughs> this is like, are we doing that? Yeah. Really? Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, he does revisit the... the um, camera booth like like the recording studio essentially for the arena which is where the whole damn investigation began um this is how he he sussed out the first beat in the case in the form of the phantom punch and now he's back there and this time i, I this is a funny detail where it's like man if only we had mike star in this booth because yeah. mike star he would have told you about the sky cam, man. He would he would have insisted you review all the footage. Mm-hmm. But no, this this fucking guy, he just like omitted that. He's just like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna show him anything he doesn't ask for. Yeah. So this time Nick Cage is like, I wanna see I wanna see the big eyeball cam. <laughs> big eyeball cam. <laughs> <laughs> and so he shows him that footage. He's like, I'm gonna need you to leave the room. Yeah. <laughs> and and he knows what's on the footage already. Um, and he plays back the tape, and sure enough, clear as, clear as day, big as life and twice as ugly. That is Gary Sinise brandishing a silenced pistol standing just behind the shooter. He's like, well, fuck. Um, and it, as it so happens, Gary Sinise is in the booth with him. Uh, he just he just welcomed himself in there, and we get uh, a, a very long conversation between the two of them where 
you can tell Nick Cage like really worked himself up to get into the scene because this is a very important scene. This is like him supposed to be displaying vulnerability um, and empathy. And so like you can see, like they gave him a really nice eye light. He look he looks like he's on the verge of tears most of this mm-hmm. conversation. He has a very different energy than the uh, Stanley Goodspeed that he was <laughs> running around as earlier in the film. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is where we get that detail from Gary Sinise about uh, he has a story about having having to seal a hatch on a, a naval craft, um, and he willfully allowed 28 sailors to die. And he's like, you ever heard people drown to death? It's not quiet. <laughs> I remember that. And it's painted on his face. It's like, yes, this is some acting shit. He's doing some acting shit where it's like you can see the trauma that he he bears because of that and this is his rationale for wanting to assassinate the secretary of defense uh, to allow this air guard missile system to go through and proceed as planned um and yeah uh, nick cage is just like flustered and and just incapable of action uh, throughout this entire exchange and this is where we get uh the bloody sea bill uh the bloody 100 hundred dollar bill that he obtained from lee's guzman makes this probably third or fourth appearance in the film it's just conveniently on the floor and it's like literal blood money uh which is being offered to him Mm -hmm. Uh, gary sinise is trying to pay him off and everything that he says here suggests like and everything we've seen honestly suggests that nicky santoro ricky santoro rather uh is is a person who will take the money and run if given the option but not this time just not this one time and uh, we see gary sinise erase the tape um, which is communicated to us via a giant yeah. erase word on the film. Was that a feature in VA VCRs back in the day? Uh... No, Brad, it wasn't. Um, back in my day, when you recorded over something, uh, it you just did it. And in my case, it was stop-motion Dragon Ball Z action figure movies with uh, clips of Fat Beach, the motion picture, in between shots. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget. I, I think I was showing my parents. It's like Goku and Frieza. No, it's Piccolo and Frieza punching each other, and then then the tracking goes up. And all of a sudden, uh, it's a two African American gentlemen in the back of a restaurant. One of them saying "Beach bitches, man," <laughs> <laughs> and then back to Piccolo and Frieza hitting each other. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Erase is not a thing that happens yeah. uh, in in this technology, but. Again, we're trying to make sure that the people in the cheap seats, they can fall. It works, yeah. Yeah, uh, but uh, Lincoln Tyler makes another appearance here because uh, we're done talking. Uh, so Gary Sinise takes uh, Nick Cage out to like the loading dock and uh, lets uh, Lincoln Tyler just open up on him. Oh, it's whales uh, on the guy. Whew, yeah, uh, he just haymakers to the rib cage. Uh, we get a, a good solid just cross right across the jaw. Uh, we get a good blood spit from Nick Cage. It's good solid... On his, uh, on his uh, medals, right? On Gary Sinise's, uh, you know, military, whatever you call it. Uh, uh, his fruit salad, yeah. as, as as they call it. Uh, yes, Nick Cage barfs up blood on his fruit salad, um, but not before Gary Sinise has this tirade. He's just shouting down at his friend, who is literally on all fours on the ground, beat to a pulp, and he just spells it out point by point, all the shit that's going to go wrong in his life if he if he insists on being the good guy today. And he's like, you're going to lose your kid. You're going to lose your wife. You're going to lose your mistress because your wife's going to talk to her. You're going to lose your job. You're not going to have a fucking apartment. Your kid's going to hate you. It's just, he turns into Mike Starr. It's like, once again, get Mike Starr in here to just rattle off all these points and just be like, 
okay, I did my piece, I'm out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, he spits on his buddy. And so the the relationship, the friendship is just like officially just bah, dead. And uh, Gary Sinise flips out on him. He, he slugs him one good. And this is where we get that shot of an unconscious Nick Cage being pulled up by the hair. <laughs> I'm sorry. Pretty like goofy. it's not. It's pretty goofy looking. Like it, it's. He's supposed to be out, so it's like not his fault. He's just supposed to have a blank face. But it's Nick Cage doing a bloody blank face. It's just like that. <laughs> Look at right now. I'm I'm screenshotting that as soon as we're done. Brad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, Carlo Gugino at this point is like put into like a a back room like that. It's really close to the boardwalk, so really close to the outside. It's like a storm door of some sort. And we get another protracted sequence. This this is the only one that I'd say is maybe too long, where Nick Cage gets up from his beating, and uh, he, unbeknownst to him, uh, Gary Sinise had planted a, one of those tracking devices. In fact, the exact same tracking device. He takes it off one of his men, puts it on his back. It's in clear view to us, the viewer, so... Everybody knows what's going on. Gary Sinise is is baiting him. Mm-hmm. It's just like I'm instead of offing him, I'm gonna let him recover. I'm gonna let him walk. Presumably, he's gonna find. He's gonna go back to check on the lady. So he follows him and he finds her. But I'm I'm really cutting this down because this scene. Nick Cage is moving very slowly. Yeah, I mean, from here on <laughs> out, I think the film is kind of like. You know, if you're it, if it, you've seen yeah. this movie a bunch of times, you'd probably just shut it off right here. To be honest. Honestly, yeah, it, it's it's a pretty flimsy ending. It's pretty flat. Um, there is one last really awesome shot in the form of another one of those instances where the camera is transitioning between rooms, and we go from like seeing Gary Sinise tailing Nick Cage, Nick Cage crawling on the floor, and then we go through the the door that Carlo Gugino is behind, and like a a prop missile comes through the wall because the hurricane is raging outside, mm-hmm. and she's like ah, like you do. Um, by the way, the production design in the arena hall is really weird and distracting because there's all these m- fake missiles suspended from the ceiling and these like GI Joe esque like future tanks like spinning around on the floor like it's a like it's a fucking car show or something. It's like this is a boxing match, right? <laughs> I guess I guess the idea is that it's like an an arms contractor or arms developers. Uh, arena yeah like, like it, it's their venue so they have all their shit everywhere but it's it's just really weird looking having all these prop missiles and future tanks spinning around on the arena floor um but yeah uh tamara tooney makes her second appearance in the film uh once again she's like why the why the fuck do i have to always be the on-site reporter during the fucking hurricanes and yeah she's doing her best to give a news report and uh this is kind of where we get our uh, divergent uh ending uh, because the theatrical cut of the film plays out uh, in the form of all the parties converging. So we get, again, very long sequence of Gary Sinise tailing Nick Cage. Very long sequence. Um, and Nick Cage comes to the door and he's like, I'm not opening it, man. I'm all beat to shit. Uh, uh. <laughs> Gary Sinise is like, open the fucking door! Because he has no chill at this point. Um, and Carlo Guillino uh, hears the words being exchanged, and I guess she interprets this as oh i'll open the other door instead of the door like there's two doors and she's like i'm gonna open the one that goes outside and so she starts wailing on the door then the door swings open there's this globe that's like a prop uh, of the arena that we've cut back to numerous times in the film up to this point this just kind of like rolling around on the boardwalk it gets loose Uh, the movie pretends that didn't happen 
because it's a theatrical cut and that doesn't really factor in anymore, but we shot it, so we're going to put it in there. <laughs> and then Tamara Tooney sees that there's a police van approaching down the boardwalk. So Carl Gugino knocks the doors open. Uh, the van swings into the doors, gets stuck in the doors, and they they turn on their their headlights and they see Gary Sinise brandishing, brandishing a silenced pistol and they both pull their guns on him, pointed at him through their windshield, by the way. <laughs> like, uh, it doesn't really work, but okay. Uh, yeah, that's a weird touch. <laughs> and then the last element that Brad had mentioned at the top of this conversation, Nick Cage and Carlo Gugino duck out of view from the cops by ducking under the bumper of a moving vehicle and just praying that they don't get decapitated yeah, that's or de- depacketated, as Kyle safe. would say. That is not safe. <laughs> that is not an option. <laughs> One should not rely on that not killing you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we get this moment where the cops are pointing their guns at Gary Sinise, and he's deer in the headlights. He's just like, ah. And then the news crew uh, poke their heads into the door, and we get a callback to the opening shot of the movie, uh, shot from per- the perspective of the news camera. And this is where we have that gifable moment that I, I, I am going to gificize after we're done recording, Brad. It's just Gary Sinise with his arms like like flat Stanley or something. And he's just like, I'm going to make a move for the door. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just like bows his head like, it's locked. Shit. <laughs> and then uh, totally kind of unexpected, uh, he shoots himself in the chest. Oh, that's yeah. I, I forgot about that. Yeah. I totally yeah, forgot that uh, he does that. <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like, it is a way to end the movie, and I guess it's fitting that, like, him being in uniform throughout the entire movie shows that, like, maybe his his reputation is important. Like, maybe his station is very, very, very important to him. Mm-hmm. So, like, this character assassination that happens here in the form of him being broadcast live on television, brandishing a pistol at a murder site, maybe that's just, like, put him over the edge. It's like, I... I don't see a way to come back from this, so yeah. I may as well just end it here. Um, but it's just it's it just feels like a an overly expedient way to end the story. Um, but what follows is what uh, I think Brad you had said you actually appreciate about the ending. Like one of the better parts, anyway, is just this like actual news report like that plays out in like sort of a montage detailing what came of this situation, mm-hmm. where initially. Ricky Santoro is given like the keys to the city. He's like given a commendation, and then the press digs a little bit deeper. There's an investigation, and they uncover all the unseemly things he's been up to over the over the years. And then, just like Gary Sinise had told him earlier in the film, basically he loses pretty much everything: his reputation and his family. So it's like he has a moment where he's on top of the world, and it's like, oh, but then they kept digging. Yeah. I mean, even Turns just like I he suck. gets a, that award or whatever for his uh, his work, and they have a ceremony, and he's like, ah, he's like screaming and holding it up, and he's so excited. And then as it goes, he just continues to lose everything, which, I mean, makes sense because up until that point, he was a terrible person. And uh, it kind of leads you to think, like, yeah, if he had chosen to just continue being a terrible person, his life would have been fine. But he did do the right thing, and it ultimately screwed him in the end. I mean, he did get to make out with Carla Gugino right at the end there, so I guess it's a win. But Yeah, it that part, 
Like I like that middle part. Yeah, the very this end part is not. Yeah. I was like, hang on, what? <laughs> so yeah, Carlo Gugino finds him on the boardwalk in front of the the casino, which by the way was in the process of being torn down and is now like fully that operation's fully underway. So he's she just finds him, and uh, they they chat a little bit about where they're both at in life. She's like, yeah, I'm really happy about how things played out. He's like. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> like everything sucks. Um and uh yeah, she uh he gives her like a peck on the cheek and she gives him a half kiss on the lips. It's like it's like that first one was okay, that one's a little better, but neither of those are particularly good kisses. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, and then he's like, I'll call you in like a year, <laughs> maybe. Um and yeah, the movie just kinda ends and even even though like the 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 end credits is just like why are we focusing on this construction site? Like, what? What is this? Like, are we setting up for like a mid credits moment or something? Well, did you get it? Because I, I had, I looked it up. Um. So they ultimately, uh, we have like a very slow zoom in on a pillar, and apparently in the pillar it is uh a ruby ring that uh the redhead woman wore. Oh, okay. I I get it. Um, I see. I didn't stick around. I didn't watch the entire credits, but yeah. I get that because um, just before the very finale of the movie, we saw Gary Sinise's agents, like his associates, um, lo- like using a series of cranes um, to to maneuver some bodies around. Oh, uh, okay. See, so that they makes put sense. they put her in a cement block, basically, like like quote Jimmy Hoffa style. Yeah, I, guess. I didn't. Uh... I, but that her ring didn't have enough significance. I found no, no, I wouldn't not have known at all. Whose that was? Unless I looked it up here on the uh, on the plot synopsis on Wikipedia. No, I absolutely wouldn't have either. Because the only ring that jumped out at me was Nick Cage's yeah. class ring. Mm-hmm. So no, I, I wouldn't have been able. Like I probably could have figured it out if I took a minute to think about it. But uh, okay, <laughs> sure, uh, it's an ending. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like Brad and I both said, like the the ending is maybe the only real not so great part of the movie um the journey through it though i i quite enjoy yeah and i'm I really, think I'm really yeah i'm really happy to have to have revisited it because i like i said I, I am a fan of brian de palma and this is one that i i hadn't seen pretty much since it came out mm-hmm. so it's, i've i've changed a lot since then i i've re i've I'm always happy to reassess films, and this was one that was a lot of fun to come back to. So thanks for picking it, Brad. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that was uh, Snake Eyes, 1998, not 2021, uh, directed by Brian De Palma. But, um, Brad, yeah, thank you so much uh, for always helping out with the show. I always appreciate having you on the Tales from the Shelf and uh, the Catching Up on Blu-ray episodes. Those are things that I look forward to every month. So I'm, ha- I'm happy that you have fun uh, along with me. Um, but before we go, Brad, would you care to let the folks at home know where they can find you and your very awesome podcast? Yeah, it's the Cinema Speak podcast. Uh, just search for us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. Uh, we're on Twitter at the Cinema Speak, on Instagram as Cinema Speak Podcast, on YouTube as Cinema Speak, and you can just find us on the web at cinemaspeak.libsyn.com. Very nice, and I'm I am looking forward to your Black Friday unboxings, which I'm I'm sure I'm sure you'll you'll have something to offer for that. For I'll the get YouTube ready. Channel. Yep. <laughs> oh yeah, that that should be a lot of fun. Um, I always look forward to those. Yeah. But, um, 
In the meantime, though, folks at home, if you'd like to catch up on any of our Catching Up on Cinema content, uh, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias at uh, Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. And the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. I remembered it this time. Uh, so, so that being said, uh, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>